What's up, everybody? This is Chris from the podcast Real Film Reviewed, and you're listening to Marv on Pods Like Us. Hello and welcome to Pods Like Us. I'm Martin Cabone, known to my friends as Marv. And this time I am speaking with returning guest from the show that we're looking at this time, Life and Life Only, Mr. Anthony Rattuno. How are you, Anthony? I'm doing very well, mate. Thanks for having me back on the show. That's cool. Looking forward to this. For anybody listening, Anthony was on previously on episode seven of season one, talking about Glass Onion on John Lennon, which is a really good John Lennon-based podcast, if you'd have not guessed from the title. <laughs> and sort of general Beatles sometimes as well, because it's tough to keep it going just talking about one person for three years. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although saying that, there's so many things about him that you can go into, but yeah, we're not going down that one. We're not talking about that, that show. This yeah, time. we've already talked about it, haven't we, before? Yeah. <laughs> for, for about 20 minutes just now. But Before people can hear, we were chatting about that. Yeah, well, my friend, um, you know David Wills, don't you, Ghosty? Yes. Uh, he's yep. been on my, on my various shows a few times, and he said, uh, Life and Life Only and Glass Onion on John Lennon are more or less the same topics, except that in the John Lennon case, we use John Lennon as a launch point. So... As that was an inter- I, I think he was sort of half joking, but not really joking. So that was an interesting observation that I used John Lennon as a base to branch off into other stuff. And now I've kind of expanded it with this podcast. So, um, yeah. Yeah. But j- just to go off on a tangent very quickly, though, you, it's easy to see how you can do that with John Lennon, though, because his psyche was very... Um, uh, special I, I don't know how to it or yeah he, he had his own way about him that sort of lends itself to that discussion yeah just very multifaceted I mean there's there's a reason why millions of people have connected with him as they probably have with Paul and, and Dylan and other people but I you know the, the, the debate I've had on again I'm talking about glass onion but the debate I've had on that is how much of it is because he hasn't been here for 40 years and how much of it is him? And that's an interesting debate, but clearly is multifaceted. I mean, Dick Cavett said, yeah. people ask me, you know, what was John Lennon like? What was Muhammad Ali like? And he said, are oh, they impossible to describe because they have this strange aura of, you know, an aura of celebrity, but also an aura of just being a kind of 
a rather unique individual. You know, I put Muhammad Ali in that category. You know, Marlon Brando, people like that. Yeah. I think because they have that sort of um, manner about them, a lot of them by the um, things that have happened to them in their own lives. Mm. So people like John and Muhammad Ali and Marlon Brando will let those. Um, should we say go? Well, these things that have happened to them, their problems. They would let the, the way that that affects them come to the fore. They would just let that out and be natural with that. Mm. Whereas someone like McCartney, who has that in his background with his mother's death and this that and the other, he'll, he'll be a bit more guarded and maybe more protective of that and have almost a sheen showing on the outside as opposed to letting it all just come out well i think not only paul i'd say that's most people you know yeah. if you look on if you watch any talk shows i mean i think talk shows have really gone downhill especially now we can watch you know dick cavett and parkinson from the 70s and stuff it was just so much more open in those days but even then you know most people are just i mean it's kind of a theme of life and life only really um it's, it's difficult to to offer alternative views because most people either a don't know what you're talking about, B, don't want to know, or C, you know, they, they, they wouldn't talk about it themselves. So we latch on to these, latch on to in a good way, we latch on to these people who just say stuff that the average person might want to say, but they're too scared to, or they feel uncomfortable with, you know, so they, they do become a kind of weird spokesman. Um, you know, they just, you could live vicariously because you're thinking, oh, John Lennon would say stuff that I'm thinking, but he says it, you know. Yeah. 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 He, he doesn't care about saying those things that we think about saying, but wouldn't dare <laughs> say. He, he, he'll just say, he just said it and damn the consequences, shall we say. Yeah. I mean, I think he knew what he was doing. You know, this is the sort of revisionist Beatles history is John Lennon was a great PR guy as well. And I totally agree yeah. with that. He kind of knew what he was doing. But again, uh, just one final thing <laughs> about this. Uh, have you ever seen the film Last Tango in Paris? Uh, Brando. In it. I've seen bits of it. I've not seen the whole film. Yeah, it's a it's a weird film. It's it's a Bertolucci film from the seventies, and it's about um, two people. It's a guy who's grieving. His wife has just died, and it's about two people having an anonymous sexual relationship where they they don't even. They don't even tell each other their names. It's like, can I? Can we have an anonymous relationship? And halfway through the film, Marlon Brando just starts giving this speech as his character, mm. talking about his parents and how they were drunks. But his parents were drunks in reality. And essentially, he changed a couple of the details, but essentially he's just, he's giving a speech yeah. as Marlon Brando, basically, playing that character. And as um, said, Ghosty was on and we did a Marlon Brando special and we were saying, I can't think of any other actor who would do that, who just bear themselves. You know, no. it could be it could be their own. It, I'm sure it's for their own reason, because, you know, everyone knows it's very cathartic to talk about yourself and especially your demons. You know, I do it on my podcast. I love it. You know, it's 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 an incredible opportunity to do it and to have to actually have people listen to it as well. So, um, yeah. Wow. You've, you've, <laughs> tra you've transitioned well there. I have, yeah. Well, otherwise we'd have gone for an hour on uh, John Lennon. We would, absolutely. <laughs> so, so going into more detail then, so what's the history of the show? Uh, how would you describe it? And how did you get it off the ground? 
Okay. Well, actually, the last time I talked to you, I think you were asking me about which podcasts I listened to or how I got started. Yeah. And the really the original podcast I listened to was uh, stuff like Joe Rogan, although I've got a bit off Joe Rogan. Um, but alternative, alternative media, really. Um, so that was kind of one of my things. And then Beatles and music and, and films was another sort of strand of it. Um, and then I thought, well, I've, I appeared on, I've appeared as a guest on a few other shows, notably The Mind Renewed, which is a Julian's, it's a friend of mine. Yeah. And we talked about interesting stuff like advertising and propaganda and um, things like that. And then I kind of thought, obviously I had the John Lennon one, but I thought I've really got to do this. I've got to, to sort of do a general podcast that looks at alternative views and truth and things like that. So I just, I finally got it going and it's basically, I call it a search for inner and outer truth because it's basically got two strands. The first strand is to do with the individual and things like, I mean, I've done a show on meditation which I'm a great proponent of, yeah. and emotional intelligence using the fantastic book by Daniel Goleman. So part of it is about yourself, because I'm also a life coach. I'm just gradually transitioning to doing that. And then the outer truth part is, uh, like I say, alternative media. It's sort of pointing out the enormous limitations of a worldview that's based on, you know, mainstream media, you know, just reading reading the news and, and feeling that you're informed. Um, and I kind of try and find a way of weaving those two strands together. And really psychology is it really, because I'm, you know, I'm a big, um, a big uh, believer, you know, psychology really drives the world because psychology drives behavior. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I'm sort of trying to mix those two strands. But then within that, you know, sometimes I just use the podcast as a uh, I'd always say a dumping ground for <laughs> things that I just want to get out there. Like I did the, you must have heard of 10 Rillington Place, you know, the, the I have. Yep. famous murder, John Christie. Yep. Richard uh, Attenborough film. Richard Attenborough film. Absolutely. Well, I, I was, I've been a big, um, I don't know, you can't say fan, can you? Because that's such a horrible case. A follower, <laughs> interested in it. And I did a thing for YouTube with, a, with um, some Rillington Place experts and a guy who actually wrote, the only biography of John Reginald Halliday Christie. And I thought, well, I'll get that. I'll put that in podcast form because some people prefer to have it in podcast form than to listening to something for an hour on YouTube. So yeah, inner and outer truth and then occasional random. There's a story about table tennis, which I'll tell you about later. <laughs> yeah. I used to be a table tennis player. I used to play in the league when I was young with my dad. And yeah. I'll tell you about that later. <laughs> All right, I was about to say that, you know, because so you, yeah, something like table tennis, you'd use that to sort of like, I don't know, yeah, calm. People use a lot of that stuff to sort of like have their own time and take themselves out of their problems, don't they, I suppose? Yeah, well, the, the actual show about it was, um, I could tell you now if you want, it was called uh, The Way of the Nervous Official, a tragic comedy about table tennis. And, hmm. uh, and ask yourself, where else would you find a tragic comedy about table tennis? And it was based on a real event. Um, it was a guy who was uh, going for his umpire certificate. And it was the last, it was the finals of this local tournament that we all used to be in. Yeah. And he was officiating and he made an absolute mess of all the umpiring. He kept giving the wrong scores and he just made a complete mess of it. And everyone in the audience 
being an English audience, they were sort of half trying to politely stifle their smiles and then half sort of sniggering, <laughs> you know. So, so I wrote, um, I've sort of expanded it out, added a few imaginary details and um, wrote a blog post, which came out as about just a 20 minute audio. And that's, I think that was the latest episode of Life on My Phone, actually. But that's quite funny. So if you want something that's a bit more humorous, and I talk about nerves as well, you know, I'm sure we all suffer from nerves. So talk about like why that happens, what actually happens to your body when you suffer from nerves. So yeah, that was a fun one. <laughs> I suffer from nerves because, especially with this show, because I haven't recorded for a while. So. Yeah, yeah. But then that, think, that that can happen, can't it? You know, if, if you don't do something for a long time that you're used to, that can bring those nerves back again because you've almost like not quite lost, but there's that edge that you're used to it. And then when you stop doing something for so long and then come back to it, though yeah. a little bit of that comes back again. Well, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Because I used to teach in um, not schools as such, but language academies in um, Spain was the last place I was in. Yeah. And uh, it's so weird, yeah, you teach from September to June or July, and then by July you're, like, really firing, you're really into it, and then you have two months off. And we all used to say the same thing. You walk in the classroom and you have this horrible, like, spaced-out feeling where you don't know. I probably had it a bit more than, than most, where you suddenly, like, you feel weirdly disoriented because you've had two months where you haven't been surrounded by ten people sort of yeah. hanging on your every word and expecting you to teach them English. Yeah, it's a weird feeling. Yeah. So, so what 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 actually happens then when 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 you're in that situation? Do you just go for it, or do you have sort of like a, or did you have something within yourself that you used to do to get yourself ready for that and prepared? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Like I said, I, I'm now a life coach, and um, I'm, so I'm still mainly an English teacher, but I've just got a few life coaching clients, yeah. and I realised that I've basically been self coaching uh, for you know probably all my life, but particularly say the last 10 years where I've been on a kind of self-development, relentless self-development kick. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, um, and it's almost like giving yourself a pep talk, you know, not actually saying the words, but so saying, Oh, don't worry. You know, this happened last year. It's, it's you know, it's nothing. A, a lot of it is just saying, Oh, it's just your mind. You know, it's just your mind playing tricks. Cause I think so many of our insecurities about things that it is in the end, just our mind. Yeah. So my friend calls it mind over mind, you know, rather <laughs> rather than mind over matter. You got to conquer your own mind with your mind. If that makes any sense. It does. So, um, <laughs> but the nerves thing is really interesting because um, what happens is like imagine um, let's take table tennis or tennis or something like that. Imagine you're Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal. You've been playing tennis for thirty years and you have what's called muscle memory. So your arm knows exactly what to do. You don't have to think about it. You know, you think a little bit about tactics, but essentially when you go to play a backhand or a forehand, you know what to do. What happens when you get nervous is that you suddenly, so yeah, sorry, just backtrack. You have a thing called expert amnesia, which means that when you become an expert at something, you don't have to think about how to do it. You just know how to do it. But what happens is when you get nervous, Try and imagine this. You're in the Wimbledon final or I talked about the snooker final. You probably remember Dennis Taylor and Steve Davis you know, yep. years ago. Suddenly, suddenly you're there in front of, you know, thousands of people. And when you get nervous, you suddenly think, hang on, how do I, how do I do this? And you suddenly have to start thinking about, oh, how do I line up the queue or how do I line up my racket? And, you know, it happens to guys, you know, we've probably all been there when you're 16 
and you, you go up to a female for the first time in your life and you suddenly forget how to speak. <laughs> don't know if that ever happened to you, but, you know, you suddenly start tripping over your words. And the reason is because in a funny way, you've almost, you've almost forgotten the nerves has taken away your expertise at speaking, just speaking, you know, not speaking great things, but just speaking. And you suddenly got to remember, and it's a horrible feeling, but I think I just got over it through doing gigs and, you know, being a teacher, I mean, I've been nearly 20 years being a teacher to get used to standing in front of people. So you just get used to it. But yeah, I kind of self-coach to answer your question, really. You know, give yourself a pep talk. <laughs> well, well talk, talking about gigs, you know, I'll go, I'll go into my own, my own history here with that one. I mean, mm. uh, so, I mean, I, I used to be in bands play, playing, playing bass mainly. or So I, I remember that when... When I first started doing that, there were there were the nerves there from doing something that was, but then when you do it a, a lot in a band, those nerves don't show quite as much because, like you said, it's it's like almost like a second nature in a sense. That's it. But then if you if you go away from from that for so long, I mean, I, I, oh dear me, I can't imagine what the nerves would be like now because I've not gigged in over ten, maybe fifteen years, so oh, I don't know well. what it'd be like now. So th- those nerves would probably be exactly the same if somebody suddenly said, "Oh, I've uh, I've booked you in for doing a performance here," and then yes, yeah, dear me. Well, I found um, <clears throat> one way is to uh, this. This sounds a horrible prospect, but do something that makes you even more nervous, and then in a funny way, the the, the music. I'll give you an example. I used to do a bit of acting. I went to drama school and I did some amateur, and I did a couple of Shakespeare plays. Okay with Shakespeare is, I mean, they weren't even like well-known ones. It, I think it was one called Love's Labour's Lost, which is not even one of his best known. And and the nerves of trying to learn the lines, because it, it's English, of course, but it's obviously a different type of English. And so I, I remember I didn't know the, I hadn't quite learned the script properly. And someone said a line that I thought was my cue for my next line, but it wasn't. And suddenly you're like, oh, Jesus, where am I in this play? Like, Because something, something like Hamlet, maybe, or Macbeth or King Lear, I kind of I know the plot very well, so I kind of know where we were. But this one, I was like, oh, my God, where am I? Like, that horrible feeling. And then I also did a little bit of stand-up comedy. Just I just did a course and a few like newcomers' gigs. So it's an interesting thing where if you do something that's really, really, really scary, then the slightly scary thing like playing music doesn't seem so bad. So that's quite a good good thing you can try I don't know but obviously doing the really scary thing is then a horrible prospect but it's a sort of a way of uh, I don't know navigating that you know but uh, yeah it's a tricky one hey this is Jack from Bad Counsel you want some good counsel keep listening to my man Marv pods like us I love that you pulled that one out actually loves labor's lost because it's um there's some really good quotes and and that from there that have become um, sort of well they've been paraphrased sort of over the years but mm. they've become um, import almost uh, people will say them paraphrased almost by rote now such as the, the you know the uh, the beauty is brought by the judgment of the eye and mm. things like that which is which is almost over the years changed into what we call, you know, beauties in the by the beholder, I suppose. But yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's one of those where people are used to certain plays and stories that that Shakespeare's come up with, and something like that. You know, you could almost say it's a bit out of left field because people don't think about that. If, if they're thinking about something along those lines, they think of something like Much Ado About Nothing, which has a similarity to it, ish. But yeah, um, I, I like the fact that you've you've pulled that one out because it's it is more out there as a choice of a uh, of one of his plays to discuss. Yeah, well, I think it was just chosen by our our teacher. I think they just purposely just didn't want us to do Hamlet because I, I suppose it's very difficult to to start doing you know to be or not to be speech, knowing all the history of it and <laughs> all the actors who've done it before you. So I think it was a good yeah, it was a smart choice by our drama teacher to choose that one. We did um, Merchant of Venice, which I always quite liked. Yeah, I like that did one. Measure yeah. for Measure, which is that's a good one. It's sort of minor, minor, minor Shakespeare, but as you know, you know, minor Dylan, minor Beatles, minor whatever is often as good or better than yep. the famous ones, eh? It's a, it's a bit like Hemingway, where everybody will think of, you know, old, old Man of the Sea and stories like that. But I, I like The Pearl very much. I think that's a that's a great story. I really like that one. And that's not one that people would think of with Hemingway. Yeah, I mean, just get, I mean, bands get stuck, don't they, with, you know, Led Zeppelin got a bit stuck with Stairway, Thin Lizzy got stuck with The Boys Are Back in Town. Often it's just, I think commercial and good are not are often not the same thing. Yeah, or, or, you know, some sometimes stuff is more accessible. Yeah. So, you, you know, you probably find the, you know, to, to someone starting out with Shakespeare, they probably find Hamlet is a very accessible story. Because although it gets a bit complicated towards the end with all the poisonings and everything, essentially it's a pretty simple story. But then you get other ones which are very, very convoluted. You know. Yeah, in in the musical realm, you've got you've got that where there are sort of songs where um, I don't know what what it is. Um, a bit like uh, oh, uh, let, let me used to get fed up with um, from from Motorhead. He used to get fed up with the, the Ace of Spades. Uh, Colin Hay from from Men at Work, he absolutely hates uh, the song Down Under. And there's a lot of groups that are like that, where there'll be the song that's the more famous song, but they themselves are fed up with that song. Yeah, there's a really funny... Did you used to watch Big Train? Yes, yeah. Do you, know that? Do you remember the one with Ralph McTell? <laughs> okay, go on. Really funny. You know, Ralph McTell had a song called Streets, Streets of, of London. Streets of London, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, just for your, your overseas listeners, yeah, Big Train was like a, a sketch show. Simon Pegg was in it, wasn't he? He was in Shaun of the Dead, various was, other people. Yeah. Uh, they had a thing where, I can't remember which actor it is, but they're playing Ralph Mattel. He's just finishing off street in London. It's a kind of a folky crowd, little folk club. And everyone's clapping and going, oh, yeah, brilliant. And then Ralph Mattel says, uh, I'm going to play you a new song. <laughs> and then the audience immediately starts sort of whispering among themselves and looking uh, disgruntled. And they all start going, no, no, Streets of London, street, down Streets <laughs> of London, like, as if they just want him to play that song over and over again. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. So, yeah, you can get saddled. I mean, if you're lucky, I mean, even think of the stones, how big the stones are. In the end, you know, they probably have to play, you know, uh, what would it be? Satisfaction, Honky Tonk Women, Brown Sugar. Um, what else would it be? Jumping Jack, Flash, Sympathy for the yeah. Devil. They're, they're almost obliged to play six or seven songs, aren't they? Even with a massive back catalogue like that. 
you've you've reminded me of that. Uh, that that do you, do you remember the story of um, well J- Jimi Hendrix when he used to do concerts and people used to shout titles out to him. Oh, did they? Uh, they used to shout song titles out to him, and Jimi Hendrix used to used to shout back. Um, I'm not a jukebox, for God's sake. <laughs> oh, yeah. Was that Jimi Hendrix? Oh, that right. was Jimi was Hendrix that, who used to say I heard that, that from Bill Hicks, used to say that, yeah. Yeah, Bill but Jimi Hendrix used to say that in the 60s as well. Did yeah. he? Did he? Yeah, he did. <laughs> Do you want to hear a really weird fact about Jimi Hendrix? Well, Go on. I went, to, I went to see a Jimi Hendrix tribute act uh, years and years ago, probably in about the 90s. And they said, uh, they announced, they, announced um, they were announcing their next song. Do you know the song Third Stone from the Sun? I do very much, you know. It's a sort of science fiction y song. They said, We reckon Jimi Hendrix, because he used to watch a lot of telly in England, we reckon he was a Coronation Street fan. And this guy said, Because if you think about Coronation Street, and if you think about it, it does sound pretty similar. So they proceeded to play. Coronation Street in the style of Third Stone from the Sun and then segued into Third Stone from the Sun, which is uh, very funny. Hmm. Uh, here's a weird one, Jimmy, because Noel Redding's mum, you know, the bass player Noel Redding, yeah. his mum really liked Jimmy and she was really protective of him. And she could, she used to say things like, oh, you know, that poor young man, you know, he needs a good night's sleep or something. Because Jimmy Hendrix, by about 69, he looked like he hadn't slept for, you know, weeks. And the other famous one is the song Fire. Yeah, um, it was like a, a snowy night or a cold night in England. Jimmy said to Noel Redding's mum, "Well, can I stand next to your fire?" <laughs> <laughs> and then turn that into a song. Yeah, it's great. That's brilliant. Yeah. Should we go back to life and life only? <laughs> Possibly, because I was going to carry Remember on that? down there. Then we need to go back to the the story, <laughs> the podcast we're talking about. Yeah. So. How, how, how do you research the subjects that you're talking about in the show and how do you how do you come up with the subjects as well? I mean, honestly, kind of like with the John Lennon one, I'd already had 10 years of accumulating, you know, ideas and material because I used to have a blog, which is pretty extensive. And so quite a lot of the Life and Life Only shows tend to be me reading an essay I've written or an essay that someone else has written in the case of War is a Racket, which was one of the recent famous Smedley Darlington Butler um, short book. Yeah. Uh, So a a lot of it is already there. And what I do typically is I'll read this essay and then I'll interject with um, comments. Some of them are sort of updates. Like um, I think one of the, one of the most important, ones I've done, it was one called Conspiracy Theory, a powerful phrase, because it's it's very interesting how um, a conspiracy theory is a real thing. Yep. But I don't know if you've noticed this, but now it's become a complete catch-all phrase. If you try and if you try and give somebody a narrative that's not what the mainstream narrative it, narrative is, they get this sort of weird allergic reaction. They sort of look at you in a strange way and say, oh, Oh, you're not into conspiracies, are you? Or something like that. Um, so that was one of the big ones. And I kind of updated it with quite a lot of evidence. I think I did that one last year, but I'd originally written the blog post in 2014, something like that. So I updated it. 
with sort of some new sort of interjections. So the research is already already there, really. But obviously, if I get um, you're mentioning the Doug Valentine one that you, you told me you'd listen to. Yeah, I read uh, his book, The Phoenix Program, which is about a program in Vietnam that that most people would have no idea even existed. And then he, he, I did the audio book, very long, something like 15 hours or something, of a book he did called The CIA as Organised Crime, which is just absolutely fascinating, just mind-blowing stuff. So obviously sometimes it, it's books you have to read, or I had a guest on called Austin Moore, who's an NLP practitioner, and he, he gave me, he showed me an interview that he'd done of about an hour, so I watched that. So... It's common with podcasts, I suppose. It's books. Yep. Sometimes it's books. Sometimes it's uh, often. If I have a guest on, I'll probably listen to a couple of other podcasts they've done just to get an idea of what they're like, or you know. But at the same time, I try not to preempt too much. You know, try and leave it fresh. Yeah. So, well, if you're keeping it as fresh as you can, then that's um, going into the subject more. That's that's sort of like. It lends itself to your show better that way because you're allowing them to to bring themselves out more, and you're you're delving into it rather than going into it knowing everything mm. about the subject. Mm. It's more you gleaning that information from the person, which is what makes the the show interesting. Yeah, and I think my secret weapon is editing um, because. I, I don't edit in the sense that it changes the conversation because as we know, you know, you can, especially with TV, when you watch something on TV, it could be edited yeah. very, very differently to create a very different thing. I don't do that. But what I do is I say to myself, because I'm going to be editing it, just go for it. And if, you know, you ask a question that doesn't go anywhere, it doesn't matter because you can just cut it out. Yeah. So I, I, I try and sort of, I try and give myself as much of a free license as I can during the recording to just try things, you know. It's like, you know, again, it's like music, isn't it? You know, when I was recording my albums in Madrid, I, I would just, on the takes or when I was writing the songs, just give yourself a license to do anything. Because if you're going to be editing it later, you can, you know, you can format it a little bit. I think last time I was on, you were, you were asking me about advice. And I think I was saying, um, try to find a balance between loose and slightly smooth yep. without being slick. I think there's a distinction between smooth and slick. Because I'm personally, this is only my personal opinion, I'm not into those podcasts, which is a couple of friends just talking for hours and hours and, and with no editing whatsoever and just lots of sort of in jokes. You know, you find yourself doing it when I do film reviews. You know, sometimes you, you there'll be an in joke between the two of you that people wouldn't understand, which is fine. But I, um, yeah. So basically, I, uh, yeah, I, I try and be as free as possible during the conversation, and then sort of sort it out later. And sometimes there've been some quite big editing jobs where people have mentioned something that we were talking about earlier, and they've mentioned something that they forgot to say, and then you've got to slot it in, and it's a bit. You know, it's a bit tricky at times, but it's kind of worth it when you hear it back. It's a bit like you've mentioned Douglas, but actually during the the show itself, we've not mentioned him at all. That was pre-show when we were talking about. Oh, was it? Right, right. Well, that was an interesting one. Yeah, it's a guy, like I said, Douglas Valentine. He's written these books um, about Vietnam and the CIA. And the thing is, he's actually hard of hearing. 
Okay. And he was following the Skype subtitles. And uh, I, I invite you and the listeners to check out the Skype subtitles sometimes. It's quite hilarious because they're not bad, but, you know, they're, they're phonetically done. So sometimes you, you get this, you know, when subtitles are done phonetically, you get this sort of weird poetry yeah. sometimes. <laughs> so he was following that. So a couple of times he actually answered a question that was completely different to the one I asked him. But he was such a good guest. Like he had so many amazing insights that, you know, I just sort of worked it out in the editing. <laughs> How did you do that then? Did you, I mean, did you do any re-record from your end so that the questions were changed to, to go that way? No, what happened, I think what happened from memory is he sort of answered a question, like I say, he answered a, not a completely different, but a slightly different question. And then I think I sort of repeated the question I'd said earlier. Yep. So I tagged his later answer to my original <laughs> question. And then I tagged the extra bit. I sort of, sort of tagged it onto one of his answers. So I think it came out a little bit funny at various times, but I think the information was so good that he was putting out that it didn't really matter, you know. But it, yeah, I've had a few adventures with that. I've had people who, um, one time I was recording and their voice came out terribly, but they'd done their own recording where their, vo their voice came out well. So I had to stitch the two together, which took oh, just hours and hours because we hadn't started the recordings at the same time. Oh God. Yeah. Editing can be a bit hideous at times, but like I say it's, it's kind of, it's worth it when you hear it back and it sounds nice, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. At Chen does that actually, you know, something similar to that. When when he'll record their sh his show uh, when they was fab, mm. uh, and uh, he will. So you'll and then so you'll do, you'll say something all between you all, and then um, and then he'll suddenly say, "Oh, I'm just going to say this now, so I can edit it in," and then mm. he'll say something, and the the reason is because it wasn't quite clear or the answer didn't quite, it was almost exactly the same as the question he asked, but it had gone into a dip, slightly different era where he's saying, well, if I worded the question this way instead, it fits better with the answer that you gave. And, yeah. and it, he, will, he will then edit it after that to, to work that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love his editing, yeah. Cause so do I. I don't know if you saw, but I put... Um, I was on his show uh, two year and a half ago, maybe we did a, a commentary on the Ruttles, you know, talking talking over the film, and I just put it on YouTube. But we recorded it uh, about a year and a half ago, like I said, yeah. And it was really tricky because we were on um, is it Zencaster he uses? Yes, yeah. Yep. So we had the film going on YouTube, and then obviously we're doing a commentary, but we can't see each other. It's audio, and there were a couple of bits. And he did an amazing job of syncing because with commentaries, you've, you've got to have the, the film going in the background yep. just in case people aren't watching along with it. Obviously we encourage them to watch along. It's much easier. Yeah. Just did this with Jaws actually for my film podcast, did a Jaws audio commentary. Um, and he managed, yeah, he managed to stitch it all together. It was very impressive, particularly since he was, oh, he's now back to putting out a show a week. Yeah. Um, so, I kind of put out roughly a show a week but across my three podcasts. And then if I'm in trouble, I'll, I'll put something out from ages ago. <laughs> <laughs> Give it new life. 
Yeah. yeah. But I don't really feel I don't really feel any pressure to get anything out because I'm I'm actually soon to be monetizing. I think I'm gonna start Patreon soon, but up to now I haven't been monetizing. So I get it fairly free, you know. Don't have a boss or an editor. <laughs> g'day, g'day. This is Matty C from the Astros Fantasy Football Podcast, way down in Australia. And we love getting to listen to Marv meet new podcasters from all over the world here on the Pods Like Us podcast. I'm terrible. I've got, I've got, I've got, I've got Patreon. Uh, I've got a Patreon account, but I never ever mention it because I almost feel like I don't know whether it's a British thing, you know, with the, you know, uh, but it's almost embarrassed to say to say to people, well, you know, I've got this Patreon, you know, and if, if you want to give a couple of quid or yeah. something, you know, it's quite helpful. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think it could be. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it could well be an English thing. Yeah, um, yeah, because on life and life only. A lot of the stuff I say is quite provocative. Yeah. Because, again, the general conceit of the show is that, again, I believe, and I, I used to work with activists in London, so I've had some experience. I still believe that the majority of people follow mainstream news and more or less believe it. Yeah. Um, whereas I think mainstream news is a good source for just events like as in the US of pulling out of Afghanistan. But I I think having discovered podcasts and things of people who would do two, three, four hours of analysis, you realize how incredibly more complex the world is than the one that's presented to us. Yeah. So what I do is, again, this is my English side. I kind of, I don't apologize because I think that's wrong to say I'm sorry for having alternative views because they're based on a lot of the time on research as well as intuition. But I do kind of say that I'm not here to offend anyone. However, this is my podcast. I've taken the time to create it. I'm obviously paying for it. It's not very expensive, but you know, Podbean fees and all that. Yes. I bought the equipment. This is my, this is my platform. And I'm going to say what the hell I want, you know, and if you don't like it, you're free to turn it off. This is the thing. This is kind of the thing. Do you remember um, Jerry Sadowitz, the Scottish stand-up comedian? Yeah. Yeah, really, really, you know, again, not not inflammatory in terms of, you know, politics or anything like that, just just making really, really in, inflammatory jokes and stuff. And I went to see him, actually. He, I was in Australia. I was back, oh, that was it. I was backpacking in Australia. I went to the Melbourne Comedy Festival, and he was there. And I actually met him, and... I kind of suspected this, but he's a really kind of quiet, soft-spoken bloke in private. It's weird. I mean, yep. we were at a bar, but I mean, he wasn't, he'd stopped performing. But halfway through his concert, because he, he'd got in the Melbourne papers for being offensive. And he said, look, you know, if you're offended, what the uh, are you doing at my show? You know, yep. you can't come to my show and then then start being outraged. You know, it's the same with podcasts. You know, if, if someone says something that, you know, like a conspiracy theory or something that offends you, then just turn it off. But if you choose to listen, that probably means that you're slightly interested in it and you believe maybe there would, maybe there is a kernel of truth there. So, you know, so yeah, the English side is definitely kind of, you know, we have to apologize for breathing almost, don't we? But, <laughs> you know, we can all break that. You can break that conditioning gradually. Hang out with some Americans because they seem to be a lot, I remember when I when I lived in uh, in Asia, there was a woman, American woman, who I was quite friendly with because she was a teacher as well. And I noticed, like, when she would talk to people, 
instead of saying, oh, could you do this? Or would you mind if you did that? Or I was wondering if you could do this. She would just say, can you do this? Could you do this? Just more directly. And I, I just felt like you just get things done much quicker. <laughs> because British English is full. As an English teacher, I could tell you, British English is full of, you know, could you do this? I was wondering if you could. Do you think you could? <laughs> Sorry for asking, but could you? You know, so it's full of all these ways of making everything sound much more indirect. So sometimes, you know, hang out with some Americans or some Aussies and it's just like whoosh, direct. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 There's some good uh, good podcasts from uh, from Australia while we're, while we're just oh, yeah. going past that, yeah. I've mm. spoken with, um, oh, who is it? Uh, Matt Matty from uh, Astro League Podcast, which uh, right. when I first heard that, I thought it's the weirdest thing ever because it's it's an Australian, so it's Australians doing a fantasy American football league. All right. So it's just yeah, pretty different out there. I like, um, um, you might like my favourite album with Jeremy Dillon. Then if you ever yep. come across that. Yep, I have come yeah, across that. Yeah. Good one. That's really yeah. good. Yeah. Thing with podcasting, I'm sure you'll agree, when you get to like somebody's voice or their delivery, yeah. Um, obviously the content's got to be good, but you you kind of start to like them. And that's a good way where, you know, I like Jeremy Dillon's voice. He always sounds very upbeat and very open. So then that's a good way to learn new music because I'll listen to a, an episode of his show of, of a band I know someone like Steely Dan, I think he did one on Steely Dan or someone like that, um, where I don't really know them that well. I probably know all the famous songs, but it's a good way, obviously, to learn new music. Like uh, you probably saw I posted about, oh, yeah, you did, yeah, Squeeze. Um, I've come very, very late to the party with Squeeze. Obviously, I knew Call for Cats and um, Up the Junction, but... I heard someone talking about it on a podcast and I thought, oh yeah, yeah, I've never really investigated that. And I just, I've only listened probably to their greatest hits, but it's, um, it's funny, isn't it? Like, again, I think we were talking before we started recording, like when you're with somebody, if you're watching a film or listening to something, an album, and you're with someone who loves it, their kind of energy rubs off on you. That's true. Hey there, this is Bobby with the Rock Guys Podcast, and you are listening to Marv Smooth on the Pods Like Us Podcast. Check him out. It's, it's, like, going to, yeah, it's like going to see a, cinema, a film at the cinema, mm. and the, the energy of everybody in that cinema yes. will alter the way that you look at a film. So if you'd have waited and you'd have watched that film on your own at home, the atmosphere, the atmosphere there would be completely different to you being in an audience in a in a theatre or cinema with with a hundred people. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. And in fact, when we did the Jaws audio commentary, you can actually see some video, um, not in our commentary, but from one of the Jaws documentaries. They actually filmed people in the cinema watching Jaws. Okay, and if you remember the the famous bit where the head pops out. About halfway yes. through the film, yeah, yep. or the yep. bit where you very first see the shark when Brody's doing the chumming, you know, yep. throwing the meat out, and suddenly the shark's head comes. Um, they filmed people in the cinema like jumping out of their seats. Yeah, I don't think people quite do that anymore. I think we maybe mm. as a as a society we're a bit more sort of too cool for school almost because I think when I was a kid, I remember I'd go to the cinema. This is in the eighties. Yeah. And sometimes people would like to stand up and applaud at the end of the film. <laughs> or, I mean, obviously, when I, I mean, 
this is really this is not surprising but i went to see i think it was rocky four yep the one against the russian and again like now i, I watch that back and it's just cringy like anti-russian just the crudest propaganda you can imagine yeah. at the time you know i'm 10 years old i'm just i love rocky i do i still like the original film i think it's great and of course you're cheering for rocky and everyone in the cinema is going, oh, come on, Rocky. You know? <laughs> but I just feel like now, I mean, I don't really go to the cinema much, but I feel like now that, that wouldn't, I don't know, that wouldn't quite happen anymore. I don't know. I, I the still, energy, yeah. you're right, the energy is still there for sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I would say that Rocky is my, uh, I think that's, to me, the best um, boxing film. To me. Ah, interesting. The first Rocky. Yeah. Well, Raging Bull is actually my favourite film of all time. Which I've not film. seen. No. Oh, you haven't seen it? Right. No, but I love, yeah, I love I love the first Rocky. I mean, boxing is just made for for being filmed, I think. I mean, I wasn't totally mad on Million Dollar Baby, but it's pretty good, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, the original Rocky's great, isn't it? That was such an amazing year, because you had in the same year Rocky, Network, Taxi Driver, and All the President's Men. <laughs> all vying for best picture. Absolutely. Isn't that yeah. incredible? It what is. Yeah. And Rocky won, of course. Yeah, well, yes, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think with the Academy Awards, Rocky's always going to win over Taxi Driver, isn't it? It's like Forrest Gump won over Pulp Fiction. I was really annoyed that year. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. A, lot always... of people, a lot of people have been annoyed over that. That's one of those subjects, isn't it? You know, it's uh, yeah. Pulp Fiction or, or Forrest Gump and... Yeah. Yeah. There's another one was, um, well, the year that Raging Bull came out, a film called Ordinary People, which I haven't actually seen, directed by Robert Redford. Yeah. That one. And you could see, you know, the, the more wholesome. Forrest Gump's always going to be a bit more wholesome than Pulp Fiction, isn't it? Because it's giving a different message. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Would Rocky be the only Academy Award that Stallone's had then? That's still what, sorry? Would Rocky be the only Academy Award that Stallone's actually got? Sylvester Stallone. Yes, he won a he won a Golden Globe for acting in one of the Creed films. Uh, Creed yep. two, maybe either Creed or Creed two. I liked, yeah, Cre I was... liked Creed one a lot. I've not seen Creed two. Creed what? The first Creed film. I thought that was that was a great film. Yeah, I've seen that once. I saw Creed two on a plane on the way to India two years ago. There's a random memory. I like watching films on planes. There's something nice about it. I don't know. It's something weird about watching it when you're thousands of miles up in the air. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think the first one he got nominated for acting. Um, did he win for writing? Maybe. Yeah, I think he did, didn't he? He won for writing. And I think the other Rocky sequels, I don't think they were really nominated for anything. No. Because they are much more, they're so different from the first one, aren't they? They're much yeah. more kind of just pure entertainment, really. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. yeah. I, I would say that, yeah, my favourite Rocky film is the first one and then possibly the second one is my second favourite. Mm. It just flows flows perfectly out of the first film. And mm. then after that, there's there's almost a slight change in the, the overall uh, style of the films compared mm. to the first two. Yeah. I watched them in a weird order, actually. I remember I watched them two, four, three, one. Okay. <laughs> I had no idea why. I think Rocky Two came on TV, 
And I just thought, oh, just fancy watching this. Because we used to watch stuff as a family, you know, we really miss that now, don't we? But yeah. me and my sisters and my parents, with the five of us, even my grandparents would be there sometimes. We watched Rocky 2. And then I think Rocky 4 came out at the cinema and it had lots of hype, obviously. So we watched that at the cinema, and then a friend of ours had the video of Rocky Three. But what was weird is that if you remember in Rocky Four, there's a very long montage when he's in his car <laughs> and he's thinking back to all the other films. So you suddenly see like Rocky looking really young in Rocky One, and yeah. you see Adrian when she was really shy, you know, with the hat and the glasses. I'm like, wow, that's weird. And then you watch Rocky. I don't know about you, but if as a kid, if you watch the first Rocky it's probably not going to be your favourite because it seems slow and, you know, it's, it hasn't doesn't have that instant accessibility. Yeah. But then as an adult, you, I, I think clearly it's the best of the films, but, you know, people can disagree, of course, but I think yeah. it's a lovely film. Yeah. Um, hot, hot take that I think uh, Talia Shire, who plays the, the girlfriend slash wife, Adrian, in Rocky, I think she's a great actress. Well, she was in the two Godfathers, wasn't she? Well, she, yeah, she, well, the three. We'll pretend that the third oh, one didn't exist. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. Oh, I didn't <laughs> think it was too bad but <laughs> compared to the other two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah she was in those first two, wasn't she? Yeah. Oh, she's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. She is. The only criticism of Rocky actually is that you know the, the sudden transformation, you know, which takes off the hat and the glasses and becomes very confident. It sort of happens a bit too quickly for me. <laughs> is like that shy person that she used to be is like completely disappeared but you know who cares you know rocky's a it's a fairy tale it's a great it's a great film well that, that whole thing of taking the glasses off and suddenly getting confidence is one of the biggest tropes going isn't it really of course yeah that's what i mean it's very old-fashioned and i have a feeling probably the studio had a lot more to do with that although although i think stallone is quite old-fashioned in a way but i would urge you to watch raging bull it's very different it's very very visceral it's yep. very, um, it's a whole different way of looking at boxing, really, because it's not really actually about, because Sco- just very briefly, the background was that Scorsese isn't, wasn't a boxing fan. He was persuaded to do this film. And he suddenly realised, oh, oh, the ring is, is a metaphor, you know, is this confined space is a metaphor for, you know, our lives and all the, yep. you know, the way we're confined and the way we create traps for ourselves. Um, so, it's very it's very heightened. I mean, if you think Rocky was a bit gory, then <laughs> Raging Bull has all these close-ups of sort of sweat and blood flying off somebody's face. It's it's not for everyone, but you know, Robert De Niro is a spectacular in that film. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, this is Katie of Bad Council with some good counsel. You should keep listening to Marv at Pods Like Us. <laughs> Anyway, less about films, because that's another one of your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very busy earning no money from podcasts, aren't I? We are, all of us. <laughs> so how, how, do you, how do you find the guests that you have on your show, and then how do you get them onto your show? Um, again, like more or less the same with the John Lennon ones. Some people in this glorious world we live in now, which is sometimes glorious, sometimes not, um, Douglas Valentine, again, <clears throat> I just heard him on a couple of podcasts, just wrote to him on his website. And then about a week later, he said, yeah, I'll talk to you. And it just gets set up like that. Um, Austin Moore, who was the NLP guy, he's the brother of a friend of mine who I used to teach with years ago. Yeah. Um, who else is there? Yeah, I mean, you just you just make acquaintances over the years. Oh, I did a, did a show on um, 
I'm going to guess you're a Black Mirror fan. Uh, the, the one nosedive. You know the one about the social ratings. I haven't actually seen Black Mirror. Oh, that's no. really good. I think it's my favourite episode of Black Mirror. Okay. It's the one. Uh, what they have now in China, the social credit system. So it's a heightened version of that, where everywhere you go, you're just con constantly rating people. Really, really interesting. I saw a really good analysis of that on YouTube from a, a guy called Harry. And again, there was a, an email address, and I just wrote to him, and I said, oh, do you fancy, because his video had only been 20 minutes, I said, do you fancy, you know, doing a deep dive on that? And people just generally say, yes, you know, you don't get rebuffed too much. You know, some people are busy, and I think when, I, when we were talking last time, I said, I'm not, in a way, I'm not really interested in having famous people on my shows. Yeah. Because, you know, even let's take Paul McCartney, you know, someone like that. I'm sure if Paul McCartney wrote to me and said, I'd really like to be on Glass Onion, I wouldn't turn him down, of course. But, yeah. <laughs> but in a funny way, any time that I've had any contact with someone who's slightly famous, essentially you're going to get less time. They'll probably say, oh, I've only got 30 minutes or whatever. And they're going to start giving you these stock answers. Absolutely. You know, Doug, yep. Even Doug Valentine, who's not really famous, but he's sort of a respected author. He kind of started doing that a little bit. And I had to kind of, again, I sorted it out with editing, but I had to kind of get him off that tack of giving those same answers. Um, so I, I tend to contact people who are either not famous or not particularly famous, but just whose work I like. And most people, you know, they just say yes, generally. You know, you word it in a particular way, flatter them a little bit. Everyone likes a bit of that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting you should say that because so for the, for the other podcast that I do, which is the George Harrison podcast, we've got an episode coming out uh, where we spoke with um, Ken Womack and Jason Cooper about the, um, the new George Harrison, Eric Clapton uh, book that they've written. All things must pass away and other love stories or other assorted love stories. And so we had Ed Chen on as a third chair. So there was me, Hudson and Ed. And on the lead up to it, I was talking with Ed and explaining to him that, you know, I've purposely avoided listening to any of the other, you know, because the other plethora of Beatles related shows, because as we both know, there's, there's a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I've avoided listening to those because I didn't want them to picture the way that I, or the questions that I'd end up talking, asking the two of them. And then uh, Ed actually get, gave me a really good answer to that. And he said, he said, I, he says, I look at it in the way that if I hear another show talking to an author about a book, hmm. he said, then sometimes I'll purposely take note of the questions that they've been asked so many times and I'll avoid that. And I'll be looking at the questions that they're not asking. Yeah, I do exactly the same thing. Actually, I've, I've done that. I've written down areas because when you, when you talk, especially, I think Ken and um, Jason have, have done the rounds of a lot of the Beatles shows, the same as uh, Chip Maddinger and Mark Easter. Yep. When they brought out eight arms to hold you they contacted me and said oh would you like us to be on the show and i said yeah sure and then i found you know they've already been on four or five other ones so yeah i did the same yeah and i often say to guests actually i i just make it clear to them that i'm sensitive to the fact that they've been asked this stuff 
like Dan Richter, you know, I had Dan Richter on a couple of times. Yeah. You know, and everyone and his, every man and his dog has asked him about Stanley Kubrick and what's yes. it like working on 2001 yeah. and what was John Lennon like? Rod Davis as well, of the Quarrymen, you know. He actually yeah. said to me, like, with characteristic sort of Scouse directness, I said uh, off mic, I said, oh, what's it like doing these interviews? And he said, oh, it does get a bit boring when people ask the same stuff. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I try and do the same. Sometimes it's a bit unavoidable, but I, I really believe that podcasts, particularly, like I say, since they're generally non-commercial, um, yeah. there's not really any point just asking the same questions that someone's going to be asked if they go on, you know, BBC radio or something. Yeah. You know, because then otherwise, just you know, they go on BBC Radio. You know, we we have this outlet to, to to come at things from different angles, and I think I think that's the beauty of it. You know, um, so I was trying to think of a person, a I, guy I, called Yeah. Go on, go on. Sorry, I, go I was on. going to say I remember that uh, I remember somebody, um, but back back in the old days, a lot of bands and artists used to do like. Uh, do pre-recorded question answers, didn't they? And they used to send mm. them out to different radio stations and places. And and uh, so what would happen would be that then they would pre-record the pretend interviewer asking a question and then have the pre-recorded answers that the record company have sent out to all of these radio stations. Yeah, yeah. You know, so so I mean that that's that's the that's it in a nutshell, basically, where they're all giving the same answers to everything all the time. Yeah. Whereas what you're trying to do then, and what I learned from that that Ed said was, don't do that. Instead, look for where people haven't gone into the subjects that people haven't broached, and then yeah. there you've got the more interesting thing because. You know, oh, dear me, I'm going back. I'm going back to the Beatles again, and I'd really rather no, not. Right. <laughs> but you know, it's the it's the stock of oh well, how many times can Paul McCartney rehash the um, the yesterday story? Yeah, well, he managed to again, didn't he, for that three, two, one? Yeah, and well, yeah, well, <laughs> he, he got a few of his few of his facts wrong in that, shall we say? Anyway, oh, I haven't actually watched it, but I, I, I thought I'd, I took the shortcut and listened to a few of the guys reviewing it instead. Probably yeah. get there eventually. But, yeah. yeah, I, I was I was watching it last. Actually, I was watching it last night. Three, two, one, and mm. um, and there was one bit in there where, you know, because Louise was at the side of me and she was doing something else. She wasn't that interested or whatever, but a bit, mm. you know, for, you know, is in the background for Louise, and uh, and then I sort of paused it and I said to Louise, I said, I said he's been very economical with the truth there or economical. I said because, and she said how how so, and I said. So they're on about the song back in the USSR. And Paul said to Rick Rubin, he said, oh, I think what happened there was that um, I suggested to Ringo about, oh, I've got this idea for the drums, but, 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 but like this, that, and the other. And then Ringo just said, well, you know, you can play the drums if you like on there. And then I said to Louise, he's being economical with the truth there because that's not really what happened. I said, because actually Ringo walked out and came back almost a week later, didn't he? I think that's what really happened. Yeah. yeah. The drum kit was decked with flowers, surrounded yeah. by flowers. Yeah. Absolutely. So, 
there's an there's an eco- there's an economy to to the way that Paul answered the questions, and then mm. and then he was on about another one where he said, "Oh, while well, we're, we're filming, um, was it Help or something or other?" and and then uh, he mentioned that, "Oh, while they were filming Help, John had said to him something about liking the song um, here, there, and everywhere, and <laughs> yeah. and and you know, and then and then you look at the thing and you think, well, actually, you didn't write here, there, and everywhere till." The following year or two Revolver. years later, you know. Yeah, revolved. Yeah. So yeah, it's um. I don't know if you're a tennis fan, but I, I kind of got into it a little bit this this summer, Wimbledon yep. and the US Open. But when you watch those press conferences, and they go, so Novak, you know, Djokovic or whatever, Andy Murray. So what did you think of your game today? They just have to say, yeah, I played well in the first set. And it's just like. <laughs> Same with football, really, isn't it? With, with yeah. sport, it's a thing like, well, what are you going to say? Like, oh, I played well in the first set, didn't play so well. My backhand was good today. My serve was good. And I was just thinking, God, it must be so boring. I mean, okay, they have a privileged life. You know, they get paid very well, etc. Yeah. But um, <laughs> have you ever seen the um, documentary Radiohead, Meeting People is Easy? No, but I would love to see that because I, I, I yeah. love Radiohead. Yeah, I do as well. It's from... It's sort of Ben's okay computer era. It's definitely oh. pre Kid A. Yeah. And you know, you can tell very quickly that Radiohead, they're, they're quite shy actually. Yeah. Particularly, maybe not Tom so much, but the others. And they're kind of very, they're very artistic, creative people. And you can just tell they're just so tired of this crap, just these boring questions. And they have to do these, you see them doing these inserts. Hi, this is Ed from Radiohead. You're watching MTV. And you could just see it, his face. I mean, I haven't seen the doc for years, but I remember it. And you're thinking, oh, God, I know he's in a privileged position. I know he's earning a lot of money, but you still kind of think, oh, poor guy, you know. <laughs> in a sense, he just looks so uncomfortable. And, and with Paul, I mean, I've been commenting on it recently, and it's very tricky when you've got a John Lennon podcast because when you start saying negative things about Paul McCartney, you, the sort of tribal stuff comes out and, you know, people will intimate, oh, you know, you're a Lennon guy or whatever. You know, I'm doing a John Lennon podcast because I tend to connect more with him, but yep. I've said a million times, I think they're perfectly equal. But the thing with Paul McCartney, he's just everywhere. It's like you never get any space to breathe. You know, he brings out McCartney 3. Before you know it, there's McCartney reimagined and then he's doing something else. He's just always there. And I've, I was saying recently, you know, I hope he lives a long life, but when he eventually goes, there'll be a there'll be a, a huge reappraisal and he'll get in a way more love then yeah because obviously you get more love when you're not around for but, various yeah. reasons psychological reasons and you know sort of just because people suddenly realize there's not going to be any more music yeah but the guy is just everywhere you know and, and i've been staying off social media a lot because you know you join a lot of beatles groups and the first thing you see is like beatles paul mccartney john lennon and it, it can kill it for you, you know. And I don't, again, I don't listen to the other guy's show so much anymore, partly because it, I don't know, I don't want to have that feeling where I, if they do a really good show, I don't want that kind of ego thing of, oh, fuck, I wish I'd talked about that or something. I don't want to feel that because I just want to feel like that they're just my friends and we're all in the, in the same uh, family, if you, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I don't want to feel competitive or, or I don't want, you know, the ego to, to protrude so you know but it's just tricky like Paul McCartney is so overexposed I mean he's just the guy's just everywhere 
sometimes you kind of wish he'd just take a six-month break. But I suppose in his time of life, he doesn't really want it, does he? He wants to get it all out before he eventually passes. Yeah, yeah. plus he's got he's got that work ethic already instilled in him from, sure. from back in the day as well. But even up to the age of 80, well, that's incredible. It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hey, it's the boys from Saw Spoken, and we are so glad that you are listening to our new friend, Marv, and his podcast, Pods Like Us. Yeah, we were recently on the show for a couple of episodes, and we really enjoyed it. And if you'd like to catch a little bit more of us with all the raunchiness and sauce-based humor that you're used to, feel free to check us out on our show. But in the meantime, keep enjoying Pods Like Us with Marv. We enjoyed talking with Marv as much as we hope you enjoy listening to him. Now back to the show. Well, you're right. Yeah, when people pass away, uh, the, 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 there is a reappraisal because it, it, it's happened over the years with with Cobain and other people as well. I could, I can see it happening with um, Chris Cornell and Soundgarden as well, and people like that. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I just saw last week. Oh, you probably saw this, didn't you? When Nirvana came to Britain, did you see that last last week? No, I didn't see it that. On, yeah. I think it was on BBC or ITV. Really, really good because Nirvana, rather like Jimmy, they kind of made it more in Britain than in America initially. And yeah. some really lovely stories of them staying in these B&Bs and these really like cheap hotels in, in London. Yeah. And everyone speaks just really well of them, just said, oh, they were really nice. You know what I mean? um, but I, I think Kurt Cobain... I think Nirvana's music has just aged fantastically. You know, I, yeah. I was listening to some of it the other day. I think it's just quality, absolute quality. I didn't realise, again, I got from this documentary, Kurt Cobain was actually talking about the Beatles. And he said, I love the Beatles and I love Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And I suddenly realised Nirvana is actually a weird, is actually a mixture of Beatles melodies and sort of Led Zeppelin style hard rock. I was suddenly yeah. thinking, wow, I think that's why I like it so much. It's obviously the lyrics have got that personalization, but it, it's almost the Beatles meets Led Zeppelin. That's a, like, oh, that's I a, love that. That's a good point because I'd never thought yeah. of that. I'm not taking credit for that. That was Kurt no. said that. Because <laughs> you, you've made me realize now about that. Because so, so Mike from the podcast, My Classic Albums, mentioned another podcast again. Mm. He's uh, asking people for. Because of it being, I think, do you say something about it being the 30th anniversary or something? Of, never mind. Yeah. Never mind. Never mind, yeah. Uh, so he's talking about that on a future episode and he wants people's memories of it or opinions. And he's asked people's favourite song. So mm. uh, I was saying to Mike that I have, a trouble with, I have trouble with that because I, I think there's so many good songs on that album. Mm. And when I eventually, um, and you've made me realise now why I pick, ended up picking the song that I did. Yeah. Uh, so I said, you know, I could have picked In Bloom, I could have picked uh, Lithium. Oh. I said, but in the end, I ended up picking uh, Come As You Are. Mm. Uh, and I mean, th this memory of that from when I've been in bands and we, we actually played that, uh, Come As You Are. You know, most people would remember Teen Spirit and Go For The Obvious. And thinking about it now, I can see why I've probably picked Come As You Are is because it is that. It's the riff mentality of the, uh, or the riff feel of the Led Zeppelin, but with the melodicism of the Beatles. Absolutely. Yeah. 
That was such I've, a revelation when he said that. Like I'm, I just watched yeah. the documentary like three days ago. I've not thought about that until you just said it, yeah. and it's just made me realise exactly why that song resonates with me. Yeah, I love it. I love in bloom. Because have you do you remember the video where they pretend to be like a, a really nice sixties band? I actually mentioned that in my description when I was saying the picking the songs and going, well, I could have gone for that. And then when I put in bloom, I put in brackets, great video. Oh, I love it. So do I. I love it because yeah. it just tells you so much about them. Unless, yeah. you know, maybe it was somebody, it could have been somebody else's idea, but it's like, we're not actually taking ourselves that seriously. and We're taking the piss out of, um, yeah. you know, that, that sort of harmless rock. Well, there is, there is that, but I also think that the, the effect of the video as well, where they've made it aged, I think that's telling you something as well, where, where they have an inspiration from music of that mm. time. Yeah, oh, definitely, yeah. Well, the, uh, another thing, um, again, I don't know if you remember this, at the beginning of Territorial Pissings, yep. you know, they say, come on, people now, get together, love one another. That's actually a song from the 60s. I didn't realise for years. It's like, come on, people now, get together. So it's sort of a hippie anthem. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can't remember who it's by. Someone listening will be shouting the answer now. <laughs> you know what I should do is every time, now, now we've done this, I should look for like sounds of of money dropping into a thing. So every time you mention something to me and I'm going, oh yeah, I could just go bling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That yeah. sound effects. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, great band. But yeah, the thing about you're saying about after people die, it also happens actually, it happened with Muhammad Ali actually, although he only died in 2016, yeah. after he was stricken with Parkinson's. Um, I'm going to sound terribly cynical now, but you notice suddenly he gets equated with Martin Luther King and, and people like that. And Muhammad Ali was an important person, but he was also a pretty flawed character. Yeah. If you know the story of Malcolm X, I think Muhammad Ali, this is, sorry, this is a tangent we can't go on now, but I think Muhammad Ali was majorly brainwashed by the Nation of Islam. And, um, yeah. Elijah Muhammad, who, who just happened to father something like eight children with six different women who were his secretaries. So, yeah, very holy man. <laughs> and Muhammad yeah. Ali basically abandoned Malcolm X, and you know Malcolm X was murdered, almost certainly by the Nation of Islam. But, yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? When people die or people get very ill, there's, a, there's an immediate... You just see them in an immediately different way. It's weird. Yeah, but so, yeah, circling yeah. back, I think when Maka dies, I think there'll be he'll probably get the respect that he I don't know if he's still craving it now, maybe he is, maybe he isn't, but he'll get it all ironically when he's not here anymore. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I mean oh dear me. I don't, I don't really want to go down this route. Dear me. I need to talk about your show. But that, that makes yeah. me think of the three two one show, you know, with uh, with Rick Rubin, where it's I don't know whether Maka Paul would be irritated by it or not i'm not sure how he feels to be quite honest but it i'm 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 sort of surprised and not surprised that having rick rubin as the person doing the the ch talking with it speaking with him i would have i thought it might have gone down the musical route a bit more and gone more into the experimentalism of um, of paul but it, it didn't so much right was Rick Rubin very sort of respectful and deferring, or was he? Um, was he? Was there immediately a dynamic where Paul's the star and Rick Rubin's sort of feeding 
questions or yeah, I, I sort of, I sort of get that. Kind of I sort of get that. See, I would, see, I would love, um, I would love someone to, to sort of do a thing with Paul McCartney where they actually confront him, not in a nasty way. No. Um, you know, just someone, someone who, you know, because I think Paul did a thing with uh, Ed O'Brien for Radiohead. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I just watched it a bit, and you know, maybe it was good, but Ed O'Brien is just so. The problem is that immediately when you come with like massive deference, say, oh, oh, Sir Paul, you're so wonderful. Yeah. Immediately you're going to get an interview. You're going to get a dynamic where Paul's always going to be the star. I would just love someone, some very irreverent person to actually interview him. Also with Jarvis, Jarvis Cocker, who I always imagined was a very irreverent. Yeah. He did this, he hosted this thing where they're asking Paul questions. Again, just immediately deferring to him. I kind of switch off, literally switch off sometimes. Yeah. The most interesting thing, funnily enough, about that that documentary mm. to me is quite often throughout it, Rick Rubin would would go into the subject of the the bass playing, right? Which I, as as a bass player myself, I found I found in a musician, I found interesting because. It's it's almost a an area of Paul that's not looked into so much. Mm. His actual bass playing, because because I, I think is I think from the sixties, I think is very important. Oof, yes, as a bass player, but it, it is overlooked a lot. And I was quite happy about the fact that he brought that up. I mean, especially yeah. since Rick Rubin comes from the world of you know hip hop and Red Hot Chili Peppers, where. I mean, let's face it. Give it away is a uh, is a <clears throat> very inspired by come together, should we say? All oh, right, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I play bass as well. And I actually, when I was a teenager, my bass apprenticeship was I learned nearly every Beatles song on bass. Nearly, yeah. So some of them I couldn't quite. I don't know. I want you. She's so heavy. I couldn't quite nail. I just learned something actually on the bass. Just learned it recently. There's a really good channel where they, they they show you the bass with the tab and then you then you can play along with it. Um, he is a fantastic bass player. Even the early stuff. Listen to the bass mm. on Do You Want to Know a Secret? Yes. And Don't Bother yeah. Me as well. Yeah. Brilliant. Absolutely. Brilliant. So he was great from the start, you know. Um, and the, yeah. And he, he put melody into bass. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, he was in... He was in What's the fellow he was influenced by? The Motown bloke. Oh, he's forgetting. James Jameson. James, James Jameson. That's yeah. It. yeah. I think I was listening to a bit of James Jameson. You can definitely hear a bit. You know, Paul took the sort of because a lot of bass in the early days is like doom, 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 doom. You know, and I feel fine. And, yeah. And that was quite a standard thing to just sort of play the root and the fifth. Or, um, but then I think Paul. I think all of them, they just had this sort of very, very, this antenna, which was just very, very receptive and open. Um, well, beyond mic or off mic, we're saying that John Lennon's genius is being open to weird things happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So We were off mic, but saying that, but yeah, that, but yeah, agreed. I agree with that. Yeah. We were talking about happy accidents, weren't we? We were, we were talking about happy accidents and our blonde on blonde from... Bob Dylan had a specific sound to it that was it because of the immediacy oh, yeah. or perceived immediacy of some of the recordings on there. Yeah, because Dylan would get them in and 
sometimes not even tell them the cause and just start playing and say, oh, come on, play along. And yeah. Sometimes when that happens, when you don't generally what key the song's in, you can more or less follow along, especially if you're in Nashville. Those guys were Nashville, very, very professional musicians. They'd be like four in the morning and Dylan says, oh, I've just written this song. And <laughs> sometimes when you play along and you don't quite know what you're doing, that's where these magical things can happen. Same, yeah. same with podcasting. I had a podcast, I um, can't remember which one. I think it was one of the John Lennon ones. And uh, I'd meant to prepare. And uh, I think I was rushing. I was in Madrid and I was rushing. I'd done a class in the morning. Then I'd done a recording session for my album. And I rushed home and it was about two minutes until I would start. And I just thought, oh, sod it. You know, you, you, know, you know what you're doing with podcasting. Just go for it. And of course, there were no problems. You know, we just had a, an hour or so. And it went fine, you know. You just gotta, you gotta trust yourself sometimes. Yeah, yeah. but I, I, I like the fact that you, in your show, you allow yourself to go down these rabbit holes. I mean, is it? I, I, I'm assuming that you've got sort of like a vague structure of certain things that you want to touch on, but then occasionally, if your mind wanders a certain way, you'll allow that to happen to see where it leads to yeah with life and life only you mean? yes with life and life only yeah yeah um yeah i mean I, i've just done i've just been on this sort of self-development knowledge kick for 10 10 years and i've listened to thousands of hours of podcasts some sort of lighter stuff music and film and stuff but i listen to lots of heavy stuff psychology and stuff like that so i've just i've just got a ton of ideas and yeah, I think part of it is part of it is a loss of fear, which has come a lot from you know self development and things. I'm, I'm really don't I'm not very fearful. I don't I wouldn't say I don't care what people think, but I'm not bothered what people think, particularly if I'm putting out a podcast in my own house. Yeah, you know it's a lot different than, because I've I've confronted. I say I used to work with activists, and we used to stand on. Um, Oxford Street and we had a sign that said we have important questions see me making a joke on when the headmaster would give you a note at school that said see me you know yeah. the teacher that's when why you're I, in, that's when why you're I in giggled trouble. I caught that one <laughs> yeah but that's that's when you know you're in trouble <laughs> so we had this sign so like I was saying earlier remember I was saying earlier like if you're outraged with something you could just walk away from it or switch it off. So the fact that we were saying we have important questions in a jokey way with a sort of a smiley face, people would come up to us and we would ask them about the world and say, what's your understanding of the world? Have you heard of this? And often, you know, when you start to bring up anything at all about 9-11 or 7-7, and we, yep. you know, I don't think 9-11 was an orchestrated event. If I had to guess, I'd say that the intelligence services probably knew it was coming. And in fact, we know that because there was a memorandum that said Bin Laden determined to strike. <laughs> We've seen it, you know, Michael Moore showed us. But so I, I've been confronted by people getting really angry in my face, saying, how dare you fucking question that? Don't you have any respect for the families? So I've had people in my face doing that. So doing a podcast and getting like a, a message from someone saying, oh, I don't like what you said, you know, that's not really going to phase me. You know, I used to busk um, in the underground on Friday nights. I used to get in King's Cross. 
because it was one of the best pitches. You got more money. <laughs> yep. It was a thing where they were booking pitches. So you booked, you booked two hours at a certain pitch, you know, and, I, and King's Cross can be quite rough. And on Friday and Saturday nights, I'd get like drunks sort of, they're never nasty, but like sort of trying to intimidate me a bit or singing along, like right in my face and, and coming up next to me and doing an air guitar. And, <laughs> you know, and I used to work, I used to be a manager of a William Hill, you know, which is a betting shop. Okay. In Camden, again, which can be a bit of a rough area. Absolutely. So you'd get people, a lot of people go from, they spend their whole day going from the, the pub to the bookie. So they get a bit pissed. That's drunk for your American listeners. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, when they lose a bet, you know, you get people abusing you going, you fucking, you know. And so I've had all that. So the idea of just putting stuff on a podcast and getting a message back you know it's not really going to phase me so really it all comes down to fear it's what i learned you know so many people are just full of fear and they don't even realize it and so they just don't want to go anything and i'm so exasperated this is where you know i've very very occasionally get a bit angry or, or a bit irritated on my podcast when i'm doing solo ones not with guests at, at basically the compliance of the public and the fact that, as I was saying earlier, this conspiracy theory phrase is now used for anything. Like, you're not allowed to question vaccines or you're anti-vax. You know, you know and my question is, why in 2021 are there still only two positions, pro-vax and anti-vax? Yeah. You know, why is there nothing in the middle? I don't understand. You know, and I, I, went, to a, I went to a writer's group here where I live. And they were nice people, you know, but I was saying, you know, oh, how many people are in this group? And they said, well, there's a core of five or six. And we got this weirdo anti-vaxxer who came last week. And I was thinking, for God's sake, you're a creative writer. Your whole point is that you're supposed to be open to things. I'm feeling like, I feel like I'm getting exasperated now, so I'm going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's a sort of, it just sort of irritates me how, how people essentially just allow themselves to be told what to think. And of course, the biggest problem with that is that the, the one thing that no one wants anyone to say to them is, uh, you know, you've been duped or, you know, you're being propagandized and you don't realize it. Because, uh, like I said, this thing in London, we would show documentaries about, you know, it could be 9-11, but more typically things like the banking system. And when, when people get confronted with, um, do you know what cognitive dissonance means? Yeah. Yeah. You know, for people who don't know, it's when essentially you get information that goes against your core beliefs, or I would argue your conditioning. And people get really angry that like you just see it in their face because they realize that perhaps what we're telling them is actually the truth. And that what they've been told is basically a lie or, you know, not necessarily on purpose. But, you know, my parents didn't know any alternatives to what, what, what we saw in our daily newspaper. You know, none of my school teachers knew that. So it's not to blame them, but Life and Life Only really is about, you know, if you listen to a few of the episodes, I would challenge you to say, you know, do you really think the mainstream media are telling you everything you need to know? You know do you think a few sound bites about Afghanistan is everything you need to know? Um, so, yeah, that's, that's it, really. <laughs> I can't even remember where I started with that. Yeah, yeah, lack of fear. So I would say to people, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a it's it's a humble thing to realize that you know we we are sort of in a society that that the media is a, very much based on fear um 
you know, it's very slickly delivered. You know, the BBC is incredibly slick, but if you really drill down, you will find there's a, there's a huge reality. Uh, and now we have podcasts, you know. Yeah. Um, and they're offering you that and offering you deep dives on very, very complex topics. And you realise, you know, what I see on the news is just like a slickly delivered five-minute soundbite. Um, yeah. That's, that's a true. Stop there, Marv. That's, a, that's okay. Um, but I mean, I, I... <laughs> it's the English thing. You see, I'm immediately going, "Oh God, don't apologise," because <laughs> I'm not apologising. You know, I think um, again, if people are interested and they want to listen to Life of My Family and they start to feel offended, turn it off. You're absolutely entitled to do that. Hey, this is Greg at Bad Counsel. You want some good counsel? Keep listening to Pods Like Us with Marv and Down with Monarchy. <laughs> Yeah. I, I can't remember who it was that uh, somebody in the music world who said something about, you know, if, if you don't like our music, don't bother listen, don't listen to it. There's always <laughs> somebody it. else there for you to, to, to find, you know, or if That's you don't it. like I this mean, song, we'll be, we'll be out, we'll release another one in a few weeks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you remember the comedian Tim Vine? Yeah. Yeah. I love that he's guy. He's brilliant. I love Tim he, Vine. He had like the world record for, uh, for telling jokes and he's got all these wide liners like Velcro, what a rip off. I think so. <laughs> and it's like it's like almost uh, deliberately bad and he said it he said in an interview it comes from insecurity because if i tell a thousand jokes if someone doesn't like the joke there'll be another one in like three seconds <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah i love that guy it's great you've reminded me of a video that i watched uh, recently of uh, lee mack oh yeah yeah the comedian and uh, so he's on stage and he's um and so uh, there's this person at the front of the audience who's got glasses and he says, oh, can I just do that or whatever? And so he's got the glasses of this person and he's taking the mickey because he, he can hardly see with these glasses on or whatever. And then he starts doing like a uh, an Eric Morecambe uh, impression, you know, with the raising of the glasses and everything. Oh, he's yeah, like, like waggling oh, the glasses. Yeah. Waggling the glasses and everything. <laughs> and then there's this person at the front, another person at the front who shouts, shouts out to him, you don't know how funny that is. And then Lee Mack goes, he says, that's the weirdest heckle I've ever had, or heckle. I don't want to get told off for dropping my ages. Edit that out. You can edit that. (laughs) And um, it's it's all right. It's natural. Yeah, it's natural. uh, Yeah, absolutely. And then he said said to them, he says, I don't know. You don't know how funny that is. He says, of course I know how funny that is. He says, I'm paying paid a fortune to stand up here in, in front of you and, and tell and, and do these things. He says, what do you think? He says, do you think I actually come out here and just tell true stories? And I'm here going, why are you laughing? This is real life here. Why are you laughing at what I'm saying here? I'm giving myself out to you. And, and it's, yeah. yeah, it just made me think of that. And and uh, I, I think I was watching, the, the I showed Louise that bit of the video and I said, what's really good about that is that it, so a lot of these comics are following a script or an, or a basic how they go from one end of the show to the other. And I said, mm. the brilliance there is that, that that heckle has suddenly shown the talent therein where he can just go off script slightly and mm. go into something else and just naturally come out with a humorous response because I think the you it carried on and was was funny for about two minutes, and then he brought it back again. It's almost like the old. I, d- I don't know whether this will work with the American listeners, but 
the the uh, the famous Ronnie Corbett thing where Ronnie Corbett would be there sat at a chair and he'd be telling the story and he would constantly go off on tangents and come yeah, back to the story. Just, just ramble, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think a lot, a uh, thing I learned on this stand-up comedy course I did years ago, it's not really about gags. Yeah. It's not really about punchlines. With some comedians it is. But it's about just developing timing and being able to tell bad jokes well because, because in the end, it's not the quality of the joke. It's, it's how funny the experience is for the audience. And yeah. I, just to give you a Tim Vine example, you know, he does songs. like Yeah. Um, so he goes, I'm going to sing a song to you, ladies and gentlemen, one called It's Easy. And all the song is him going, it's easy. It's easy, easy, easy. He gets the audience to, to repeat. Easy, easy, easy. It just goes on for ages. It's yeah. easy. It's easy. And then he goes, God, blimey, that was hard work, wasn't it? <laughs> and it's not funny when I say it, but I'm just, no. it's easy and then hard work. It's a bit like because you so, just got the yeah. timing, you know. It's the just, timing, really. Yeah. Someone was. T- <laughs> yeah. That's that joke. They said, "What is it?" Was he said, what, "What's the best thing about you know the first thing you should learn about comedy?" And then there's a long pause as well. Timing. Oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's it. That yeah. Joke, isn't it? But, yeah, I've got very good comic timing. Yeah. Yes. Something like yeah, that. That's the one. Yeah. We know we were talking earlier about um, people personalizing, you know, like Lennon and uh, whoever, Brando or whoever. Yeah. yeah Bill, Bill Hicks had a great, he had a great opening line. He'd come on stage and go, um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I've been on the road doing comedy for 10 years, so bear with me while I plaster on a fake smile and plow through this shit one more time. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, oh, yeah. only teasing, it's magic every single show. But I, I know someone yeah. was talking to me the other day about potentially going and doing a stand-up for the first time or something. And um, and I, I said to them, I said, look, I said, I, I don't do, I don't, you know, I, I've not done it myself. I said, but I said, I would, I would offer one suggestion or whatever. And I said, I said, you know, if you, you know, if you, you come out with an opening joke and I said, and you only get one, you get just one person towards the back who responds. And other than that, it's dead. I said, Take note to that person at the back and actually bring that into the into the thing. I said, so what you will do is that person will applaud or go like that one person at the back. And I said, what you could do is, for instance, you could use a line like you could go, oh, thanks. I've um, I've sent the money in the post for you or something. Mm. And then I yeah. said, so that then lightens the situation. So always be looking for those sort of times where if it starts to get a bit like that and you've got that, do something about that situation. Mm. it's making a positive out of a negative, basically, you know, life skills. Yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah, like I say, make, making a good show out of bad material in a funny way, like purposely using, like what you're saying, like if something goes wrong or you lose your thread, turning that into the point, you know, yeah. that's the skill, isn't it? But, I mean, I read a biography of Bill Hicks. Bill Hicks spent so long. I think someone like Jimmy Carr, I'm not really a fan of, but I think he, he when he started, he did 300 gigs a year. Yes. So almost every day, you know, or perhaps he did two shows a night, but you've got to spend that time on stage. I mean, some people are naturals, but because you, you have to just feel comfortable. Again, it's like music. It's like podcasting or anything. When you're comfortable in this space, like when I turn on, when I do a podcast, either on show like a guest for your show or my own show, something happens to me as soon as I press record, 
and I don't really have to switch it on anymore. You know, it just happens. You get comfortable. And with teaching, again, it's the same thing. You know, when I first started teaching, it's horribly intimidating. Yeah. Being in a class of 15, 20 people. I mean, I'm lucky because I rarely taught children. And I taught children for a year in Asia. And it, I just found it awful. I used to get this horrible sinking feeling just before the class. Um, but yeah, if I could offer just some advice, what I said earlier, like I said, you know, after you've done Shakespeare or stand-up comedy, then playing music in front of people becomes easy. So I would say um, almost like confront your darkest fear in a funny way, um, which I know is a difficult thing to do. But think about the thing that makes you the most afraid and do it. You know, it could be like approaching a stranger in the street just to, you know, if you're a shy person, some people wouldn't even approach a stranger in the street to ask them the time. But um, I'm planning to do an episode of Life on My Phony where I go into my local town with a with a, a recorder, you know, like a dictaphone, and say to people, "Would you would you like to answer a few questions for a podcast?" Yeah. And then I'm going to ask them some stuff about, you know, what do you think about? Does the media tell you what you need to know? What do you think of conspiracies? Da 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 da. Do you think we're being propagandized on a daily basis? What's the worst that can happen? They'll say, no, I'm not interested. That's true. You know? Yeah. So I think if life and life only is about anything, it's about realizing that we do live in a fear-based society to some extent, and but you can conquer it by just chipping away at it every day, you know? So I, I would like to sort of leave you with that message rather than the, the message that, you know, <laughs> depressing stuff like Afghanistan and Iraq and terrorist attacks. <laughs> I'm Agent Scott and I'm Cam the Provocateur and we're from the Spy Hards Movie Podcast. That's right. And you are listening to Pods Like Us, the podcast that has a license to thrill. You, you, you can go down these, you know, going go into that. I mean, um, your, your show, Life and Life Only, is interesting to me because I like to go down these these rabbit holes and essentially I like to listen to things that in a way are almost new to me in a sense because with that it adds to uh, my, my own, well, sort of knowledge, I suppose, um, because before the show I was explaining to you about or we were talking about the um, when I took part in Gil's show, The Mind Buzz, he allowed me to go down the uh, the the rabbit hole that I'd I'd recently got uh, got interested in because it's strange because I listened to so many podcasts and then I was listening to of all things a podcast about about Genesis uh, tabletop Genesis and they were talking about the um, uh, Peter Gabriel song uh, from from the album So uh, and it's called uh, We Do What We're Told brackets uh, Milgram's Thirty Seven. Oh yeah, I think and, that, song. that was used on a documentary. That song, yeah, yep. Yeah. And it, and then one of the people that actually does that show, uh, Mike Lord, he actually majored in uh, psychology oh. in university, and he started to go into detail on on what what Peter Gabriel was speaking about in that song. Which I mean, I always thought for all these years, I just thought of that song as an interesting vignette of a piece as opposed to a fully formed song. Um, but because he explained 
where that came from and the story behind it, it suddenly made the song more interesting, interesting to myself. And I went down the rabbit hole of trying to find out more about what that was all about. And it, it was interesting. And then Gil, as soon as he started the mind buzz, he said, Oh, what was that you were talking to me about? And he allowed me to go down that. And then he, it, it, Gil's, Gil's a brilliant one for, so we're there. And then while I'm chatting about it, I can see him on another computer. So he's, he's well, actually he's got dual screens where he is, you know, pulling away the curtain. So he was talking on one, one, one monitor while on the other one, he was bringing up all this stuff. And suddenly it's sort of like, Oh, I, I, when there was a pause, he suddenly started playing this footage that he'd actually found of the, um, from those initial um, experiments in the sixties. Hmm. And um, yeah, the Milgram one's fascinating. Absolutely. So yeah, for, for anybody, for anybody, I've already gone through this now before in a previous episode, but for anybody interested. So the, the idea of Stanley Milgram was that he was a, um, I think he was a lecturer at Yale and yeah. he was interested in, because the year before we came up with this, they had, um, I think they'd sentenced, uh, was it Heinrich or somebody? I can't remember his name now. Uh, but they were going One of the Nazis. One of the Nazis. And maybe Himmler, so, Heinrich Himmler, maybe? Yes, that's the chap. Yep, Heinrich yeah. Himmler. Yeah. And so he had kept close note, close watch of these, these trials of these uh, German soldiers and leaders and the fact that they were basically answering and just saying, look, you know, these things that we did, we did them because we were being ordered to do them and it mm. was our job to do them. Mm. And so Milgram thought of doing these experiments where he would see, it, he would find out if that was the truth you know, if people were told to do things, would they just do them despite the outcome? So mm. he came up with this idea where uh, he put an, he put initially the first time that he went through it, he put these uh, advertisements in the newspaper to advertise for people to or volunteers to take part. Well, actually, they weren't volunteers; they were paid four dollars fifty, I think it was, right. at the yeah. time. Uh, so they were brought in by this newspaper advertisement and they were taken to do. So the idea was that you would have what was called a, a learner and a teacher. Hmm. So you'd have one person behind the, the glass in one room and in the other room, you had somebody who was attached to an electric chair with electrodes on and you, they had these series of words where you'd have you'd have associated words. You'd have one word, and you'd ask the the learner for the associative associative word. And if they got the word wrong, you were to electrocute the uh, the learner. The teacher would electrocute the learner, and you had a dial at the back that sort of like explained different levels. And each time that they got one wrong, it would go up a level as to how the electric shot was and at the back of them, they had somebody called a supervisor 
who would basically watch and make sure that you know things were were done and or just 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 oversee what was happening and mm. so these things were happening and then the the twist of it all is it's almost like um it's almost like an M Night Shyamalan experiment, <laughs> you know, with his films. You know, there's a twist to it where, so initially the the twi- the twist is that the actual person in the electric chair wasn't being electrocuted; they were acting, hmm. and but it was made out to the the teachers that all that they were also uh, part of the people. Some of the people who were um, brought in from the from the uh, newspaper advertisement and then they drew they drew sort of like the it's sort of supposedly random as to who was chosen to be the teacher and the learner were really it was set up so that the people who come from the newspapers advertisements would be the teachers mm. and the learner was actually a, an act of pretending and the actual experiment was to find out how far those people normal ordinary people on the streets would go with the instructions they were given to electrocute these people until they would stop doing it. And mm. would they just keep going on? And I just found that fascinating. And they ended up, I think the end, uh, Stanley Milgram said that he proved that actually, if you're uh, ordered to do things, it's very possible that you would go against your natural urge to, you know, your morals would go out of the window because of orders. Absolutely, yeah. I think it was a certain percentage would go up to the point where they would actually kill the person. Um, yeah, yeah. Th- 37 well, you, out of 40, I think it was. Was it? Wow. I mean, you've really hit on something there because another thing I wanted to say really about uh, media, it's actually well known, this is a fact, that the CIA infiltrated the media, which sounds like some bizarre, again, like a conspiracy theory, but it's Operation Mockingbird is a real thing. And essentially advertising does the same because everyone, if you talk to people, they will all say, oh, advertising doesn't work on me. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry. You know, there's a reason why advertising is a million or even billion dollar business. It does work on you, but you just don't know it. Yeah, absolutely. Again, a kind of another mantra of life and life only is perhaps that that there are forces out there that actually know you better than you know yourself. You know, including me. Not not saying I'm anything different, because they know they do experiments. They know what triggers to pull, and you see this on social media. You know, there's absolutely no doubt that there are lots of dummy accounts on social media. And I did an experiment, actually. I, you know, this is this is not the the most fun way to spend about an hour. But I looked through the YouTube comments, and when I, when there's a video that's sort of inflammatory, I look through the accounts of people saying, "Oh, you're a lunatic. You're talking a load of rubbish," and loads of them are fake accounts that have either nothing on them, or just like one video. Yeah. Um, and another thing, if you don't mind me. There's another really interesting video online, and I'm a little bit wary because it's not like a sourced video. It could be slightly staged, but have you ever seen the one that's in a dentist waiting room? And there's about 20 people waiting, and 19 of them are actors, and there's only one person in there as a young lady who's genuine. And every 10 seconds, a buzzer goes off, and everyone stands up. 
Like all the actors stand up. Okay. And the woman, the woman, the first time it happens, is like going, oh, what's going on here? But then eventually, after about the third time, she starts standing up. Like for no reason whatsoever. You just hear a beep or a buzzer or a beep. Yep. And everyone stands up and sits down again. That's the hive mentality. Yeah. And what happens is, but what's really fascinating, gradually, like all the actors, they go into the dentist's, it's a dentist's waiting room, and they go in to see the dentist, so to speak. Yep. And then what happens is that genuine people start coming in. But this this girl has started standing up every time she hears a buzzer. <laughs> and all the other people who are not actors, they all just come in and they all start doing the same thing. And you think like, are these people like lunatics or something? But they're not. It's what you said. It's it's compliance, which is yep. has been, you know, it goes all through school. Again, the question is when, how much of it is planned and how much of it, it's just like the way society is organised. You know, it's absolutely fascinating. And another thing, uh, you have a show called P2. I don't know if you actually know. Do you know where that comes from? Obviously, it's a George Harrison song. That actually comes from Propaganda Due. Okay. Which is an, an Italian secret society that Berlusconi was involved in. And I always found that fascinating because how, how would George Harrison know about Propaganda Due? Mm. Um, due is obviously Italian for two. Um, yeah. So, you know, that'd be worth looking into. It's like, oh, did George Harrison know something? Because you find, like, uh, I'm a big fan of Frank Zappa. And he, he did yep. a song called I Am the Slime. Yes. So if you ever come across yep. that. And you, you yep. kind of think, oh, it's just a kind of a goofy song. And then you see the video, and I Am the Slime is all about television. And it's all about how television is just filling you full of crap, basically. Um, not to say that, you know, there aren't entertaining shows, but it's more no. to do with the news. It's filling you with all this useless information. And again, Bill Hicks used to talk about that, you know, hey, honey, we've got 50 channels of crap on the TV, you know, Pink <laughs> Floyd as well. That song, uh, Nobody Home from The Wall. Yeah. I've yeah. got however many channels of eh, to choose from. Yes. Yeah. You know? You can so, swear, you know, you've said the F word a few times. Yeah, I have, yeah, so, yeah. I don't know what the rules are here. I'll put a big E like to get, at the end. It's fine. I want to get beeped. I've always wanted to get beeped. Oh, really? Beeped. Oh. <laughs> I should have it's taken note of where you've sworn so I can do that. It's my secret ambition. <laughs> Damn. I'll remember next time and take notes so I can beep you. This is Dave of Live Life Loud, the Decibolic Podcast, and you're listening to Pods Like Us with Mar. Can you put me in touch? Can I ask you a favor? Can you put me in touch with some of these sort of People are into alternative ideas. I know you put me in touch with Gil. Yep. Um, but if you, if there's anyone else, can you put me in touch with them? Because I do like having these conversations. Absolutely. I mean, you, um, ooh, well, you're, you're on Twitter, so you can look for out of the blank. Cause I know Robbie likes to just talk about absolutely anything. And he likes to go off on tangents and he, he, he loves this sort of thing. So, you know, out there's the blank. out of the blank. Yeah. Yeah, but, um, uh, I think the problem, the only problem I've got at the moment is that I'm recording and recording and getting all these wonderful opportunities to record and talk to people. But then I'm going to end up with a huge backlog again. <laughs> yeah. Do you mind uh, if I use this audio just in the future, like in about a month's time? Absolutely. Yeah, I don't, I don't mind doing that. Done that before, you know. We, we did a group mm. chat with me, Gil, and uh, Dave Belknap from uh, Decibolic Live Life Loud podcast. Mm. And 
um, D- Dave, and I think Gil did the same as well. We used the exact same footage for each other's shows, mm. and I just found that I found that really fascinating to to see how each person used that footage in a slightly different way. Mm. And it's just... Well, they call it a swap cast, don't they? Yeah, they call it a swap cast, yeah. And yeah. I'm always doing swap cast for this. Yeah. This is what, a swap what, cast, essentially, isn't it, really? Yeah, what I generally do is I wait a few weeks because I don't want to compete with your version. So what I'll do is when you put your version out, I'll promote it on all my channels as I would my own podcast. And then I'll wait about a month and then I'll, I'll probably edit it slightly just because I've got used to a certain way of editing, you know, taking out errs and ums and all that kind of thing. Yeah. But, it, you know, I'm not going to change the essential content. I think this will be so, October yeah, do the that. 7th. Oh, is it? Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've got, oh, God, I've got so much at the moment and no time to edit it. So, yeah, it, it could be up to December <laughs> before. It... But yeah, it's nice because then, you know, like I say, I can promote your version of it. And then a month will go by and people will have been, not forgotten about it, but, you know, obviously you'll have more episodes going out. Yeah. And then, I, then I, I'll do a version of it. And then it's like, to some people who haven't heard the original one, it'll be a new thing. So it works well. You know, we've all got to support each other, haven't we? Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So what shows of yours stand out then? All of them. All of them. Uh, yeah. Only listen, kidding. No, no. Listen, listen to the whole lot of them. <laughs> of course, yeah. Um, I'm just having a look here. So on the on the more sort of inner truth side, the more inspirational side, you might say, uh, the meditation one I did, because I did a couple of uh, meditation retreats when I was in Thailand, which were absolutely incredible yeah. experiences. And the emotional intelligence, I did a three-parter on the Daniel Goleman book. Um, I think one that's very important was this one I talked about, conspiracy theory, a powerful phrase, which is like a one and a half hour deep dive on the phrase itself rather than, you know, I don't look at Princess Diana or or the moon landings. I'm not even especially interested in that. It's the weaponization of the phrase because it's it's about shutting down debate. So, you know, you just use that phrase and then immediately X amount of people will just switch off. Yeah. Um, If you want a bit of comedy, like I said earlier, the one about table tennis, which is a 20 minute. And I kind of put on a bit more of a comedic, a lighter, different voice for that one. That's quite an amusing story. Because this poor guy, you know, he just had this absolute nightmare and I feel bad exploiting it, but it was 30 years ago. <laughs> um, Black Mirror fans would like the nosedive one, which again is coming suspiciously true you know i mean you may well find in the next few years that there's a social credit system in the west and obviously you know a pattern that will often come is that people will say oh that would never happen in the west you know stuff that's happening in china but you might find bit by bit using the boiling frog technique of just gradually introducing something um and then the interviews there the doug valentine one was a big standout so um, there's only been 18 shows up to now, but there'll be many more. <laughs> Absolutely. The table Those tennis one, coming back to mm. that, it's, mm. it, it, I, I, like, I like the sound of that because it's it almost, it's a bit like, it's a bit like uh, one of the reasons why I love satire is because that's, 
that will bring out serious issues, but in a different format. So it's it's not it's not like a news program satire, isn't it? It's it's mm. done in a humor. That's why I like you know um, the the famous ones would be the. Uh, I, I still think that the um, the the class system uh, one, the famous one where you've got the three people standing side by side, the upper class, the middle class, and the working yeah. class. And yeah. I, I still think that is a perfect representation of why satire works and on what good satire is. Um, mm. Because it's it's something that it, satire looks at a situation from all angles, or good satire does. It doesn't accept this opinion or that opinion. It's a more open uh, format, which is what your programme is. That's more of an open format where you won't, you will deep dive into it and look in more detail at all sides and what the actual, what the basic nuts and bolts of it is. Mm. Yeah, I think I think one of the tricks with that is to give people something that they can enjoy on different levels. Yeah. You know, and if you take, um, I mean, a brilliant example is The Simpsons. Kids can watch that and just get off on the comedy of it, and adults can watch it for the social commentary. Absolutely, so you yeah. can enjoy it. That's why it's it's such an. Uh, I mean, I think The Simpsons is a. I've never actually been the hugest fan, weirdly enough. I'm not one of those super fans, but I can see that at its best, it's doing something very, very clever. You know, Bill Hicks would say. I mentioned Bill Hicks a lot because Bill Hicks and George Carlin are my absolute comedy heroes. Yeah. Bill Hicks would say, when he'd been saying something very profound, he'd say, don't worry, everyone, there's dick jokes coming. <laughs> Just bear with me for five more minutes and then we'll all pull our parachutes and float down into dick joke heaven. <laughs> so, yeah, that one you're talking about, it's a Frost Report, isn't it? It's John Cleese yeah. and the two Ronnies. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what I did with the table tennis story, it's frivolous in one respect. It's, a, it's kind of a humour comedy story. But then I kind of go into, like I said, nerves. It tells you a little bit about the English character, a sort of not wanting to laugh too much, but sort of sniggering under your... Because if I could just tell a very quick story, I was talking about in that table tennis story, I branch off. Um, I used to work in a company. And, um, uh, yeah, retail company. And there was a guy, like a head honcho, who came from... Switzerland. He was a weird guy because he was very powerful. He was very high up in the company, but he looked like a almost like a little boy. He was very, very youthful looking and had a kind of very unintimidating way. Anyway, he did this slide presentation and uh, his English was fantastic, but as a non-native speaker, sometimes, you know, you get mistranslations and it was so funny. At the end of his thing, he said, um, right, everybody, I want to give you my philosophy of business. And you know, business people always want to talk about being open and everything. My door is always open, all that kind of crap. Yeah. He said, um, so he pulled down this slide and it said, in order to succeed, we must expose ourselves. <laughs> and I put in the table tennis story, like immediately the everyone had the image of uh, boiled sweets and inappropriate behavior. <laughs> you know, the idea of someone with a trench coat exposing themselves. Um, so... <laughs> So there's a sort of humour in that, but then, you know, that's a little bit of a comment on, you know, the mentality, you know, like we're adults, but sometimes we become children, you know, when someone says something like that, we sort of go, hee, 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 you know, that kind yeah. of thing. 
it's it's like still laughing in adulthood at uh, fart jokes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think yeah, I think I said some somewhere in the story is something like people didn't know to behave. It was almost like someone's doing a presentation and you realise their flies are open. It's that kind of thing. You know, it's that such slight uneasiness that comes comes across the room. That hey, it's Gil from the Mind Today's Mind Culture and Social Podcast. And you're listening to Pods Like Us. One thing I always found fascinating is um, sort of group dynamics. And you'll know from being in a band or being in a classroom teaching, dynamics are a fascinating thing, you know? And like I say, when I go and when I do my meetup group, I've started my own one here where I live. When you get onto certain topics, you feel a sort of slight unease comes over everybody. You know, if you go too far down the rabbit hole, as you were saying earlier. Yeah. So it's, it's just all fascinating. Psychology is just inordinately fascinating. And you don't really need to study it to have an interest in it. You know, because it's everywhere. You know, just watch the way people behave, you know, study behavior. And you can do that for free just by interacting with people. I almost purposely... I think I call it the unease. I'm going to call it from now on the unease factor. Where if I will suddenly feel a little uneasy, I might think, "Do you know what? I'm going to go into that on purpose now because there must be something behind it that's making me uneasy." And it's it's almost the 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 danger of the, the it's it's the, the danger of the unknown that makes it more interesting in a sense. Exactly. Yeah, it's why, um, I mean, I, I used to box a little bit more, yeah. sort of just went to a boxing club, did some sparring and stuff. When people go to boxing matches, there's a weird thing that happens where this sort of bloodlust that <laughs> sort of comes out that's in all of us, you know, because in the end, we're still animals, you know, we're civilised. Well, we think we are. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, it's that thing of sort of living through another experience. So you go to a boxing match, and you might find that some aggressive impulse comes out and you don't act it out. You don't actually start punching people, but you live through it. So I think, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. When you get that feeling, just try and embrace it. When you start to feel uncomfortable, like, because a boxer will tell you that their whole life is dealing with discomfort. That's why you don't generally get many middle-class or upper-class boxers who get to the top. Because boxing is essentially mostly working class people who come from ghettos yeah. who, who've lived out that discomfort in their whole life. So it's nothing, it's nothing difficult for them. Well, obviously, boxing is a difficult thing. It must be a terribly scary thing, whoever you are. You know, even Mike Tyson used to say, you know, if you don't feel fear when you go in a boxing ring, you're crazy. But it's a wonderful thing to confront your fear and almost start to enjoy it. You know, which sounds very weird, but if you just, with a little bit of sort of training, training yourself, you know, you get, because you get an adrenaline rush. Yeah. You know, and you get an adrenaline rush from pleasurable things, but you also get an adrenaline rush from extreme fear. You know, it's like if you went in the forest and you spotted a bear, like in the distance, <laughs> you know, that'd be a horrible feeling, but it would also be an exciting feeling. Yeah. So I think you're absolutely right, you know, like, 
takeaway might be just put yourself in a fearful situation. You know, not a terrible situation, but a little bit of fear. You know, go up and confront someone in a in a friendly way, where normally you'd be afraid to. And uh, it's it's wonderfully transformative. You know, you know, I, I've had over the last 10, 15 years just profound changes in my life pretty much off my own back you know I was inspired by certain people but I can't tell you how much I've changed you know over the last 10 or 15 years yeah and anyone can do it you know it really can you know anyone could change it's not beyond you yeah a lot of it's your own limitations a lot of it's another thing another theme of the podcast is sort of self-talk you know we tend, most people, I think, including myself, we, we have an, what they call an inner critic. We have that person in your head that could be your father, could be your teacher, or it could just be nobody. It could just be yourself telling you, oh, you know, what are you doing? Yeah, you can't do that. What are you doing starting a podcast? It's that annoying, cynical voice, but you can crush it. You know, there's an old fable where people in a village lived in, the, lived in um, fear of a sort of a mythical monster and they saw the huge shadow of it. And as you get closer and closer to it, the shadow recedes and then gradually disappears. And it's a wonderful metaphor for, you know, the fear we feel. If you just confront it, you actually find there's almost nothing to it. You know, it's just, it's sort of an invisible voice or like I say, it could be your, could be your parents or your teacher. But uh, yeah, it's a wonderful thing to confront it and conquer it. So, hey, this is Tim for Bad Counsel. You want some good counsel? Keep listening to the smooth, dulcet tones of Marv on Pods Like Us. <laughs> right, you, you just made me think of a Star Trek episode. <laughs> We've just done two hours, twilly. This is fantastic. I know, flipping out. I this... could do another two hours, so you, you're going to have to rein me in at some point. <laughs> I am. We're, we're going to have to bring, bring, the, bring this to an end shortly. Could have so. some lunch. Yeah. <laughs> <Speaking> <laughs> you both. Uh, so you've already explained your uh, approach to editing. Mm. So what other shows would you suggest to people uh, that you really enjoy listening to at this moment? Oof. I mean, there's so many. Um, more to do with life and life only, more to do with... Um, self-development absolutely yeah uh psychology there's a great one called psychology in seattle and i actually had the main both the guys i had them on glass onion to talk about john lennon's psychology that is brilliant because it's deep but it's very accessible at the same time yeah the guy i mean he's done a thousand shows (laughs) wow but when he came on glass onion he's already done a thousand shows he's probably done probably 1100 by now um, there's a good one called Tangentially Speaking. Yes, I've heard of that one, yeah. By a guy called Chris Ryan, and he's written a book which I'd really like to read called Civilized to Death, um, which is not as morbid as it sounds, but it's talking about how modern civilization uh, has kind of brought us, it's almost like two steps forward, one step or two steps back. Technology is great on one level, but we're losing I think everybody knows this. We're losing that sort of communal feeling of the past. Families are getting split up, that kind of thing. But it's not its not a depressing show by any means. No. Um, if you really want to go a bit more hardcore conspiracy, but very, very well sourced, the Corbett Report, 
C-O-R-B-E-T-T. And it's James Corbett, again, who's been on Life and Life Only. Very, very reasonable guy. Pretty much everything he says is well-sourced and he believes in open source information. Yep. Oh my God, there's so many, it's hard. And The Mind Renewed, which is a friend of mine. I've been on that one a few times. Uh, for music, uh, the one I mentioned earlier, my, my favorite album with Jeremy Dillon, that's actually the name of the show. Oh my God, can I have a quick look? Okay, yep. I mean, it's just millions, but I'll try and just pick a couple. I've actually got a list of all the ones I listened to. Hang on a sec. Um, I mean, Beatles ones, I'm sure that they've all been covered on the, the show. Glass Onion on John Lennon, that's really good. I'd love to meet that guy one day. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, let's have a look. I really like The Unexplained with Howard Hughes. Uh, yes. Not that Howard yeah. Hughes, but he's a guy. Again, he, he, I like him because he, he's been a mainstream radio DJ for years. So he's kind of, he's, a, he's found a happy medium where he will embrace alternative ideas. But he will challenge you. You challenge the person. Um, sorry, just a couple more. Okay. I, yeah, thought we, if you're I promised in you a poem, didn't I? I was going to give you a poem. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, go um, on. If you're interested in advertising, there's a good one called The Dark Arts of Marketing. Yes. Which, again, is, is yeah. not as dark as it sounds, but it's sort of telling you advertising techniques from a guy who actually uses them in his daily life. For songwriting, uh, you've probably heard of Soda Jerker. Sure Absolutely, yeah. Soda Jerker on songwriting, that's a good one. Yeah. With the, with Brian Sy. Yeah, they're from Liverpool, aren't they, those guys? Yeah, they, they went to uh, Lipper, didn't they, I think? Lipper, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, million film ones, I mean, the Pro Projection Booth podcast is good. Next Reel is one I listen to. Uh, I get a... I'm going to plug a couple I've been on, but only because they're my friends, not because I've been on them. But Real Britannia, R-W-E-L, is about English movies, British movies. Great. And, uh, the, the Stinking Paws, P-A-U-S-E. The guy who runs those, Scott, he likes his puns, as, I, yeah. as do I. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> um, and then just literally one more, well, two more. Uh, History by Hollywood is a very good one because it, it's uh, reviews of films which are based on real events. And what they do is, is they actually go scene by scene. So they'll talk about a scene, uh, for example, let's take The Social Network, you know, that one about Facebook. And they'll actually go scene by scene and tell you how true to reality, but not done in a dry way, it's entertaining. And then fi final one is called Napalm in the Morning. Uh, there's actually two called Napalm in the Morning, so you have to get the right one, and it's the Vietnam War through film. So they take all the classic films like Full Metal Jacket and Apocalypse Now, and again, they'll tell you how realistic it is. And I think a couple of them are actually, I don't think they're Vietnam vets, but they're actually been in the military, so they know what they're talking about. Well, that is a quote from, a, from Apocalypse Now, the title. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah, I love the smell of Napalm yep. in the Morning. Yep. Absolutely. The, um, the, the great others. Robert Duval. Robert Duval, yeah, yeah. There's a hundred others, but I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs> okay. I'll give you that poem, because it sort of fit, it fits with them, um, because you were on about a book. Oh, you were on about a book, weren't you, when you when you mentioned a book in passing, when you were talking about the pods. Somebody wrote a book, Something, Something, Death. I can't remember. 
Ah, civilized to death. Yeah. Yep. Mm. So, mind you, I don't think, actually. I've said that, and I don't think this this works. Man. Anyway, so basically, I'm saying a poem, or, or I'm going to mention a poem because I love poetry. I love words, and Anthony is a lover of poetry and words, and uh, has taught taught English as well, I believe. Still yep. am. Yep, still teaching English. So this is uh, The City of Sleep by Rudyard Kipling, who is one of my favourite authors. Over the edge of the purple down, where the single lamplight gleams, know ye the road to the merciful town that is hard by the sea of dreams, where the poor may lay their wrongs away and the sick may forget to weep. But we pity us, oh pity us, we wakeful are pity us. We must go back with Policeman Day, back from the city of sleep. Weary they turn from the scroll and crown, fetter and prayer and plough. They that go up to the merciful town, for her gates are closing now. It is their right in the baths of night, body and soul to steep. But we pity us, our pity us, we wakeful, oh pity us. We must go back with Policeman Day back from the city of sleep over the edge of the purple down ere the tender dreams begin look we may look at the merciful town but we may not enter in outcast hall from her girded guarded wall back to our watch we creep we pity us our pity us we wakeful our pity us we that go back with policeman day Back from the city of sleep. There you go. Wow, oh, it's lovely. Yeah, I was saying earlier, I could feel like how much you like that in the way you read it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, there's a lovely, there's a lovely rhythm to that, to the writing as well, isn't there? Absolutely. The, the, yeah. Well, I've always found that even even with his no, novels, his his writing of books, there's a, there's a rhythm to his writing in that as well that I, I really like yeah. what's the famous quote with kipling about treating two imposters uh, can i just google it? please yeah <laughs> <laughs> no, there's, a, there's a brilliant quote which uh, has always stayed with me i mean i, I, I was i was thinking because this coming up I, I i knew about you know the love of, of poetry and of literature and i thought I've, I've got to do something because it's something that i don't uh, not able normally to 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 go into, mm. and so I was thinking of poetry, and I thought so. I've got lots of poetry books. I because at the side of me as well, I've got what Spike Milligan's book of Millig Mil- Animals. Crying. Oh yeah, yeah. Great. and then uh, of course I've got quite a bit of T S Eliot as well because I love the uh, Practical Cats, and um, yeah, but yeah. So th- there's so many to choose from. You know that, that I could have chosen from. I'm going to swear again, I'm afraid, but Larkin wrote a poem about your parents, they fuck you up. <laughs> and I'm dealing with, I've been dealing with family drama recently, so it kind of stuck with me. I know the, the Kipling, I mean, I, I won't read the whole poem, but I think the famous bit is always, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies or being hated, don't give way to hating and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. 
And then just the famous line is, if you could meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. Yeah. So that's interesting. The line, I think with poetry, same with really good song lyrics, I don't think there has to be one meaning. You can take whatever you want from it. And there's interesting that line, don't look too good nor talk too wise. I often think about that when I'm podcasting, because when you're trying to dispense some sort of truth that you've learned, one of the natural reactions that people would say is to, to feel like they're being patronized. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's, it's like a reflex action. Um, so, and I've had this before, like, again, you know what I was saying earlier when, when I used to be doing these events in Oxford Street, when you confront somebody with something that they kind of suspect might be true, but it goes against their conditioning, they will get angry. And one of the things they'll say is, oh, yeah, you know everything, don't you? That's one of those reflex. It's basically an ego reaction. Okay, uh, yeah. Because I, I think, you know, if social media has proved anything, it's proved that inside every adult there's still a child. You know, again, including myself. I'm not saying I'm any, any different. I've been triggered on social media. I've got into arguments. And I look back and I think, Jesus Christ, you're 40 years old and you've just engaged in an argument that would shame you know, a 10 year old. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So that's an interesting thing as well. You know, we won't go on a tangent now, but ego is another thing that, you know, if your listeners want to take anything away from that, study ego, study your own ego and see how much it, it, it basically guides your actions and how you need to guard against it. Cause the ego is essentially, I mean, the id is the child, but I think an ego is sort of makes you behave in a childish way. So, you know, there's so much to so much to mine, but you've got to be very. If you are interested in developing, and you've got to be very honest with yourself, and it's very painful as well. You know, it's painful to think. You know, it's painful to analyze your own behavior. That you know, you don't need to necessarily go into therapy, or you know, and have a professional. You can almost do your own sort of self coaching or self therapy in a way. So again, one of my big mantras is that, you know, especially with the internet, you know, people say, oh, the internet, like everything on the internet is a load of rubbish, but you can get so much. I mean, you can, you, you know, you've got like a whole university course there waiting for you. <laughs> yeah, you have to pick and choose a little bit, but, you know, there's so much opportunity now to learn. That there's really no excuse for, in my book, for, for not, you know, at least questioning what you've been told and stuff. Um, yep, the information's know. out there. You don't know how easy you've got it nowadays with the internet. <laughs> hey, this is Brian with Concerts That Made Us podcast, and you're listening to Pods Like Us, a great show about other great shows. Yeah, well, again, one, one of the things that people will say about... Um, uh, conspiracy theories they'll say again I'm using the term in the sense of this sort of weaponization of it they'll say uh, oh I bet you read that on the internet or they'll talk about people on the internet who do you know that doesn't use the internet apart from you know your granny and you know, children under the age of five although they probably do to be honest <laughs> so when they say like stuff on the internet that doesn't really mean anything I think what they mean is that a lot of stuff on the internet is not necessarily sourced I get that, but 
in terms of you know just learning and self-development i mean there's so much there you know it's all there waiting for you um if you're so inclined anyway that's the last speech i'm making today that's all right i don't need to ask you advice now because you've just given it in terms of the podcasting well, you, you, well, in life in general, I think that's I think that works for podcasting as well. What you've just said, yeah. I mean, with the podcasting, the sort of mechanics of it. I think last time I was on, I was saying, yeah, you know, try and find a nice middle ground between organic, but sort of not. It's it's just me as a podcast listener. Like I say, I, I'm not that into stuff that just goes for hours and hours and it's not edited at all and it's just like a bunch of people just making a load of in-jokes. Yeah. That's not to my taste. You know, it might be to other people's tastes, but I try and find a middle ground between, like I say, smooth, slightly smooth. I take out the ers and ums, for example. And if there's too much repetition, I edit that out. But then I train. It, it, I don't think it sounds too slick because another thing is if you watch the news, just, just watch a news program and really analyse it. It's, it's just slick beyond belief, you know. It's, hello, and welcome to the news. And they even talk in that funny voice. Hello, welcome to the news. And they'll say something like, um, America has pulled out of Afghanistan. And they'll show footage of, you know, you probably saw that footage of those, those Afghanis falling from that American military plane that was coming out of Kabul. Um, but, it, it, you know, if you go back to... Um, this is not really nice to watch, but if you ever watch Walter Cronkite announcing the JFK, that JFK had died. Yeah. Do you remember that clip? Like he puts down his glasses and he looks like he's about to burst into tears. You know, that would have no place in today's newsroom. They're not no. interested in anybody getting emotional. It's everything has got to be slickly delivered. This is the news. You know, 100, 100 people have died in a suicide attack in, you know, um, Iraq, you know, it's just it's just this horrible desensitization. So I think with podcasting, again, if especially if you're talking about something that you feel is important, you know, personalize, you know, tell stories about yourself, you know. You know, you're doing it for you, you know, I'm doing it a lot for myself, but you know, I've I'm sure you sound like you've got lots of good stories. I've got hundreds of stories from my own life. And so I try and find trying not to self-indulge too much. But people love it when they personalise. Like when someone, you know, as we were saying earlier, when you get to know a podcast and you listen to a few episodes and you get to start to like the person and start to feel like you have a kinship with them, then when they start talking about their own life, I love it. You know, I think, oh, brilliant. Like the Psychology in Seattle guy, Kirk. Yeah. He's very professional. He's a professional therapist. But then he talks about his own vulnerabilities. And he talks about, you know, times when he's been afraid and I love that you know I really warm to people I don't really want something that's too slick you know if I listen to a podcast and I like the person I want to hear them talking about you know their own fear or their own vulnerabilities of course it depends on the topic if you're doing a review of a of an album there's probably not a place for that but (laughs) I think there's a place for deep analysis unless you're reviewing the first John Lennon album Oh, oh, there you go. Yeah, it's built in then, isn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I did an episode on that with um, Dave Thermay. You know, I've got a Beatles podcast. Yeah, yeah, have you? 
Okay. Yeah, Dave's been on twice, actually. Uh, it's, it was called John Lennon in 1970. I was doing a series where I take a year and we talk about the news events, which tend to be always nom- always dominated by Vietnam, as, as you can imagine, from that 60s, 70s period. Yeah, I've heard that and Dave, Dave and I were talking about Plastic Ono, and we both agreed afterwards that the album was getting better the more we talked about it. <laughs> you know, because it's very... I get very emotional, you know. I've, I've never burst into tears during a podcast, but I've sometimes I, some things really touch me very deeply, and I'm that kind of person. Perhaps it's because I'm half Italian. I don't know, but and that Plasticono band, it really it hits me very hard because you know I didn't have the struggles of John Lennon. I, you know, I I grew up in a fairly stable family, but I'd argue, you know, <laughs> scratch scratch beneath the surface of any family. Anyway, um, but I really identify with those struggles. So I, I let myself get slightly emotional and personalised because I, and I don't, I don't do it, you know, just because I think the audience is going to like it. I just, you know, I turn the mic on and I just go into this other space, basically, as we are right now. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't help myself, you know, I don't, I don't engineer it. It just happens. So, yeah. Don't even know. Don't even remember what I was talking about. It's okay. It's like <laughs> personalized. Like, yeah, it's like if I pick up a guitar sometimes, and I'll just naturally go somewhere on the guitar, and it's innate. Yeah, yeah, and break the rules as well. You know, I mean, uh, talking about Nirvana, there's a which which I think it's "Serve the Servants" from In Utero. Okay, I th- I'm sure it's that song. He goes into the solo. The solo is more or less in a completely different key. Like it doesn't. It shouldn't work at all, but in utero is all about basically mental illness, isn't it? I think in utero is almost Kurt's plastic owner band in a way, yeah. although it's much more, um, it's much less direct. Some of it is anyway, but yeah, Kurt Cobain was an amazing guitarist because, you know, obviously technically he wasn't amazing, but he would play stuff that, that just sounded like, like, what is he doing? Like, it's not even in tune. Oh, sorry, not in tune, but it's not even in the right key. No. But it just fits. Like I think that, like I was saying earlier, I think Nirvana just totally holds up. You know, I think if you compare it to say Pearl Jam, I like Pearl Jam. Yeah. But that doesn't that just doesn't hit me in the gut. I mean, Chris Cornell Soundgarden that hit me in the gut. Yeah. But the, but then he, he broke some rules with with guitar chords that he'd he'd use. Absolutely. You know, I mean, dissonance. You know, what dissonance yeah. is when you put notes together that don't fit. You know, when I was making albums, my producer would occasionally say, yeah, but that, that, that note doesn't fit with that chord. He is very open to experimenting. Mm. Don't get me wrong. But I would say, yeah, but I kind of like it. It sounds wrong, but I kind of like it. Because it, yeah. it must connect with me in some way. You know, we don't always know why, do we, as creative people? It's, it's some of the reason why I like the music of, of Eno. Yeah, Brian. As well, Eno. because it, because it, Brian Eno will put in a lot of dissonance or things that shouldn't work in the music, but mm. but it does because it gives it that extra. Uh, I, th- I think that sort of thing works mainly with music that is of an emotional, has uh, an emotion to it because then that emotion is brought out by that dissonance and the in the in the it, what shouldn't work. But actually, it does work because it gives it that something. I think also maybe it's something to do with imperfection. 
because like I say with the news or with I find it I struggle with modern music yeah uh, modern rock music particularly there's very little I gotta sound like such an old man but there's very <laughs> little since the white stripes that has really interested me I've tried yeah but the thing is I think nowadays we have so much music like when I was when I was in Spain someone downloaded 30 gigabytes of music to my hard drive and I'm like, I will never in the rest of my life be able to wade through all that and listen to it properly. So I've already got more music than I can ever listen to in my entire life. Yes. Um, but I've, I don't really like the, the modern rock sound. I think the White Stripes, he did something very clever. It sounds like modern music and old music almost at the same time. Do you know what I mean? And Jack White was a kind of in the Kurt Cobain school where he's not really a great guitarist. but it just sounds very powerful. Do you know what I mean? Jack White's a bit sloppy. I mean, Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, if you, you know, if you were really dissecting that, you'd say he's a really sloppy guitarist. But who cares? You know, yeah. you know, because it's just brilliant. You know, and, this. Um, I can't remember what we were talking about. Yeah, but um, what were we talking about? <laughs> So, okay, we'll, we'll go back on to track notes now. Yeah, so, yeah, um, <laughs> okay, so where can people find your show and get hold of you? Right, yes. Um, so, um, yeah, I have a third podcast called Film Gold, which I won't talk about now, but it's basically a deep dive into films. Wait for season six for that episode. Yeah. <laughs> Lee, well, yeah, I mean, I think you and I could talk about films uh, for probably the rest of our life. but Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, Film Gold, yeah, Glass Onion on John Lennon is the one that, um, your listeners probably already know about and then life and life only so they're available in all the usual places but i think i'll give you the twitter because i'm finding twitter is a quite quite a good place so glass onion is onion lennon with a capital o and a capital l life and life only is life only 75 and film gold is film gold 75 capital f capital g but um i also have a website finally which is anthony with no h Rotuno, R-O-T-U-N-N-O.com. And that has got my blog, all my music, which is five albums and hundreds of demos and covers and live videos. And then all, my, all the links to all my podcasts. So basically everything is there, finally, in one website. That's cool. Yeah, and that's it. And thank you very much. It's been great. I mean, we've done... Uh, it does, and we've, we've, we've talked for nearly three hours. Yeah, and I feel, no joking, I feel as high as a kite. When I get in these conversations, it's like my new drug. <laughs> yeah, barely it, drink anymore. It's a legal one, so we're fine. Yeah, I barely drink anymore. I've cut out the naughty stuff that I used to do. Although, again, I had some great experiences, don't get me wrong. <laughs> so, you know, we all need a drug, don't we? And we do. Great conversations is a great drug. So yeah, just thank you very much and thank you for letting me talk. And it's fine. It's great. Not not shutting me off. Or... It's great <laughs> catching up. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been a year. I've been doing this for a year. Crikey. How many episodes have you done now? Uh, 63 that are out. Wow. I know. Wow. So can I chuck a question back at you? Go on. <laughs> What's been the what's been the journey of your podcast? Like how has it changed you? Has the podcast changed? What what have you found? Um, I found it's easier to do it now. Um, 
So it's, it's like you said, you know, you, you you put on the headphones, you have the microphone there, and you just you, you you're automatically in that place, uh, mm. which initially I wasn't. Um, but I've also found that I'm also I'm more. I, I, I used to be a bit protective of things, so I'd, I'd be. So I, I did initially used to overproduce, I think, mm. whereas now I'll listen to, if I listen to some of the older episodes now, the first ones that went out, I'll listen and think, oh, I can see where I've edited that there because the conversation, it's almost like you're trying to overproduce to make it slicker, but you lose some of the conversation in the process. And now when I'm editing I might hear something that doesn't quite work, but I'll think I'm not going to get rid of that because it's natural. So I'm I'm less like that now for production. So yeah, I think everyone will tell you the same thing. When you first start, there's a certain insecurity, and I yeah. think overproduction. I mean, John Lennon, Double Fantasy. Hello. I yeah. think you know when Ken Womack was on Glass Onion, or when I read his book. Sorry. That was an incredibly detailed production, Double Fantasy, and he gave the he gave the songwriter he gave the musicians charts, and, and I kind of disagreed with Ken Womack a bit. Ken Womack was saying, "Oh yeah, the charts were really helpful," and I'm like, "Well, isn't Beautiful Boy just basically three chords?" Yeah, I don't really understand yeah. why you need charts, but anyway, but John Lennon was very much that. You know, I think overproduction is a sign of insecurity, and we've all been there. So I'm pleased that you're finding that you're doing that less is great. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with it, but... It's okay. And has it changed you as a person? You, what, what have you learned? That's not too general a question. I'm... I think, I think I've lost a, lost a shyness that I would normally have. I think it's made me more open to talking to people, I think. Yeah. I don't, don't really know where else to, to, to go with that. But perhaps I need some lunch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good idea. Hear me. Anyway, yeah, just like, thanks for having me on again. It's been, yeah, this has been fantastic. I don't think we knew we were going to go this long, but. No, I, yeah. I certainly didn't, but I, I just let it go. I, I, I like the conversation of it all and just letting the conversation flow. And now I've got to think about how I'm going to edit this down to something that people will. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be happy to listen to. Well, just to warn you, when I put it out in a month or so, probably two months at this rate, because I've got such a backlog, um, I'll probably leave most of it in, so it'll probably end up being a two-parter. So, so I might actually end up doing that as well, actually. Yeah. Two-part, I think. I'll just say, if you, if you happen to edit some of it out, you'll probably be able to hear it again when I put my version out. So. Okay. <laughs> Hold on a sec while I do the sign-out. Okay, so th thank you for chatting today, Anthony. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. You can get hold of me or, or the show, get in touch with the show. We now have our own uh, email account, which is podslikeus at gmail.com. And you can also go to the website, themarvzone.org, for anything to do with me if you really want to go down that rabbit hole. But uh, for now, thank you very much. 
for listening and hope you listen again to another episode of Pods Like Us.